You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We're living in a world that is incredibly unstable and it's becoming more unstable as the months go by, isn't it? The problems that confront the world. I mean, we're just getting over COVID. We're all, we're all wearing face masks, except for me. I've got a reprieve while I'm here. Um, and we're just getting over that. And now there's an energy crisis. There's also the war that is run between Russia coming into Ukraine. Uh, there is problems in Europe. There is inflation taking off through the Western world. You know, there's all sorts of problems. In fact, we've got a couple of contacts that are coming to our ecclesia because they see that there is problems in the world. And isn't it a huge blessing that we know the truth and we know God is in control? We know that it's all going to work out, that Christ will come and the kingdom will come and we can really trust in that. Now, brethren and sisters, our subject tonight, sorry for this weekend, is John the Baptist. And what an inspirational man John the Baptist was. He's a great inspiration to study. We're not going to be able to cover all of his life and all the things related to his life because you'll find that there is just so much scattered throughout the record. I have to say that uh, when you stop to think about John the Baptist, he's an amazingly important man to think that here he is. He turns up. His birth is announced in the, in the chapter that we've read. And he's the first prophet in 400 years. That's a long time. Through Israel's history, there'd never been a longer period where there was no prophet. And he comes along and he's a prophet. And I have to say also that the Lord's words about him, have a look in Luke chapter 7. The, word, the Lord's words about John the Baptist are certainly amazing. And the Lord wasn't someone who would embellish the truth for the sake of making something that was a good story. No, our Lord was one that spoke things exactly, wasn't he? He said the truth as it was. In Luke 7 verse 28, he says about John the Baptist, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now, as far as I'm aware, with my limited understanding of medical things, um, none of us weren't born of a woman. We're all born of a woman, aren't we? So this is amongst all people, he's saying. The greatest prophet ever was John the Baptist. Wow. Greater than Elijah. Greater than Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any other prophet you care to name. That's what the Lord says is his estimate of John the Baptist. That's truly amazing, isn't it? And yet... When we have a look at the way um, things develop in the, in the gospel records, we can easily overlook some of the work of John the Baptist. We see a bit of it at the beginning, but we can easily miss the great thrust that there is about John the Baptist. He is, I think, the most underappreciated, underestimated prophet in the whole of the scriptures. Now, here's just some examples. I want to show you some parallels between the records of the birth of John the Baptist and the records 
of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find there's an amazing parallelism. Luke, in his gospel, is going at pains to put John right beside the Lord Jesus Christ. He's putting John with the company of the Son of God. That's the level he's putting him at. So you find that, and you can see on the screen, dating the event. Both done in the same sort of way. Background of the parents. In Luke 1 verse 5, it's about the parents of John the Baptist. In Luke 2 verse 4, it's about the parents of the Lord Jesus Christ, where, of course, um, Joseph wasn't really the parent, but Mary was. He notes the reason for the mother's inability to conceive. He then points out that the, the parents question how this will be. And we're going to come and look at that in, in, in a bit later. Gabriel predicts the birth of the son and gives him a name in both cases. Gabriel predicts the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth. But it keeps going, brethren and sisters. The mission of the sons is described in detail. The mothers acknowledge what the Lord has done for them. One parent breaks out into song. And so in the case of um, the birth of John the Baptist, it's Zacharias who breaks out an amazing psalm, which we'll look at tomorrow. And in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is Mary that breaks out into an amazing song too. There is a record of the actual birth. There is a record of the circumcision and naming ritual for both of these children. And, that, and there are a number of prophecies that are recounted. And then there is a one-sentence summary of the child's progress from youth to maturity. Isn't that a remarkable parallelism between the Lord Jesus Christ and between John the Baptist, which tells us how important it is that we look at the life of John the Baptist. Luke is drawing our attention very heavily to him, and he is an outstanding example. He really is. So <clears throat> what we're going to do by way of studies uh, this weekend is study one, which is tonight, is about there was a certain priest named Zacharias. And so we're going to have a good look at Zacharias and Elizabeth. Study two is entitled, Thou child shall be called the prophet of the highest. And this is words taken from what Zacharias said in his amazing psalm. So we're going to be looking at that. Study three is about how the word of God came to John. And this is about John being not only just a voice, but also a presence. The Lord Jesus Christ said to the crowd who were doubting about John, what went ye up to see? And he talked about John. Was he clothed in soft raiment like some sort of king? No, he wasn't. What went you out to see? He was an exhibit. Our exhort is going to be taken from the subject of the voice of one crying, In the wilderness prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then study five, we're going to look at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ by John. And then study six, we're going to look at John being put into prison and then finally to death. And there's lots and lots of fabulous information and exhortation in all of that. So tonight we're going to have a look at Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now in Luke chapter one, <clears throat> which was very ably read for us tonight, we get introduced to Zacharias in verse five. And in Luke's style, we're told some details to set the scene. 
And so in verse 5 it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, this is Herod the Great, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, or Elisheba. Now, Luke is setting the scene remarkably. Let's think about what it was like to be living in those days when Herod, Herod the Great, was the king of Judea. Well, Herod the Great was appointed king in, in, of Israel by the Romans in BC 37. And he ruled till he died. And there's a bit of debate about the timing and the accuracy of the chronology sometime between BC 4 and AD 4. He was an, of an Edomite family. In fact, the last family of all of the Edomites was the Herod family. And they converted to Judaism by, with, with the Maccabees. They weren't really given a great choice, but they did convert. And so they were Jewish. And Herod was a, an amazing man in terms of what he built. He built the temple that bears his name in Jerusalem, didn't he? He also built Caesarea. Sorry, Caesarea. Caesarea is the way that the Jews pronounce it. Herodium and Machaerus and all sorts of other places. But he was an incredibly cruel man. For example, we know that when the wise men didn't come back and tell him where this child was that was to be born king of the Jews, what does he do? He says, oh, okay, we missed that one. No, he's going to get rid of all of the children in, in, in Bethlehem, wasn't he? So he organized for a massacre for all the kids under two in Bethlehem to be destroyed. But he hasn't batted an eyelid. Hasn't seemed to worry him that, well, here are all these innocent children just dying. Well, you see, he was used to doing that sort of thing. And in fact, it's interesting to note that in Herod's will, he required that on the day of his death, that there be 200 leading Jews executed to make sure that it was a day of mourning so that the Jews mourned instead of rejoicing that he was dead. That's the sort of cruelty there was in the man. Now, fortunately, apparently that, that will was not actually acted on. So as a result of this, he was absolutely hated of the Jews because he'd murdered many of them. He'd also, in one of his uh, fits, decided that he was going to put the Roman eagle in the temple, which he knew would upset the Jews, and it did. And then importantly, he decided that he was going to appoint the priests, the high priests, and we'll cover that in a bit more detail in a moment. And he taxed the Jews so heavily because he was building all these grand projects with thousands of men and all these expensive materials. He needed the money, so he just increased the taxes. And what could the people do? Nothing. He was appointed by Rome. They had to do exactly as he said. So if we just look at some of the, um, the things that he built, here is a picture from uh, done by the third temple institute in jerusalem of what herod's temple looked like and it was a very very grand building no no two ways about it so he built all that for the jews and really for his own um, aggrandizement josephus in and his book antiquities of the jews records how that the temple in jerusalem was considered the seventh wonder of the ancient world 
So it was a pretty impressive place, wasn't it? He also built things like, that you can see today, the aqueduct at Caesarea. It goes for many kilometres and it was built so that water could be taken, fresh water, to this area that he'd established, this new port city of Caesarea. He also built Herodium and Machaerus and the Tomb of the Patriarchs at Hebron, etc. Right, so we're talking about Herod the Great and what he did, his grandness. And this is a, a, a map that shows the territory of Herod the Great. Uh, you can see the outline of the area that he ruled, which was quite a considerable area. It picked up all of what was known as Judea and Samaria and Galilee and over on the other side of the Jordan, the area of Perea. And then right up the top, there was a whole lot of scattered areas, including Trachonitis. And that was the territory that he reigned. Now, so he's in absolute control and he is a cruel, cruel man. So life under Herod the Great was pretty, pretty hard. But it was also particularly hard for a priest like Zacharias because Herod decided in BC 37, when he came to being in control of that territory, that he was going to appoint the high priest. None of this hereditary high priest's bit, people descended directly from Herod. No, he was going to do it. So he appointed his first high priest for a year. And then uh, various other people suggested to him, said, oh, look, you really should have Aristobulus III in there because he descended of the Maccabees and he'd be a much better high priest. So he put him in. And a day later, he had a quarrel with him. So he drowned him in his swimming pool. And that was the end of Aristobulus. He lasted as high priest one day. You know, lovely man. And restored the, the chap that he had in there before. You go down the list, you can see there's quite a list of them here. There was Joazer ben Boethesis, Boethus, 4 BC, and he lasted longer. He lasted a week until he upset Herod, and then he was gone. So can you imagine what it would be like to be a priest when the high priesthood is critically dependent upon pleasing Herod? And they did everything they could. There was corruption left, right, and center. And this is the sort of situation that Zacharias is in, because he's a priest. He's got to deal with this. And so one of the lessons I would draw out of this so far, brethren and sisters, is that we should thank God that our governments and rulers still allow us freedom to worship and live our faith. We might not think that they're ideal rulers, and they perhaps add a great deal of frustration to our lives, but compared to living in the days of Herod and having to suffer his evil ways, we're very blessed. And I firmly believe that, because having a look at what Herod did, I certainly wouldn't want to be living in his times. For the ordinary person, it was just absolutely horrible. Now let's look at Zacharias. Zacharias is described by um, Luke as a certain priest, which tells us he's not a chief priest. Because Luke does talk about the chief priests, and the chief priests were normally those that were the older priests. But here he is, he's quite old, isn't he? It says in verse 7, they were both now well stricken in years. So he's not climbed up, if you like, the ladder of power in the priesthood. He's an ordinary priest. And he's of the course of a buyer. And this 
is an amazing index, you know, of the accuracy of Luke in recording things. David, you might recall, established in 1 Chronicles 24 um, the various orders of the priesthood. So in 1 Chronicles 24, it says, verse 1, Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, and you will then find that there is 24 orders described from verse 7 through to verse, 20, verse 18. And it says, Now the first lot came forth to Jehoiarib, the second to Jediah, the third to Haram, the, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth. And if you go down to the eighth, it says in verse 10, the eighth is Abijah, right? which is the same one here as Abijah. So David set about to have 24 orders of priests. And the way it worked was that each six months, one order of priests served in the temple each week. So that gave you coverage for 24 weeks. And then there was a, a special arrangement for the, the feasts where you needed a lot more priests on the ground. And so in two weeks every six months, there was quite a number that had to be there as well. But basically, priests were there one week in six months in the temple. Now, <clears throat> what happened after the Babylonian captivity was that there was only four orders of the priests came back. And that's in Ezra chapter 2. Um, we haven't got time to look at all of the detail of this because Ezra 2 is a fascinating chapter. When you look at the, the list of the people that came back, there's all sorts of things that are wrong, like there's way more priests than there is Levites. There's... Um, Quite a large number of priests. So in Ezra chapter 2, it says, The priests, here are the priests that came back, the children of Jediah, which was one of the first of the orders, the house of Jeshua, verse 37, the children of Emma, verse 38, the children of Pasha, and then verse 39, the children of Harim. Four orders of priesthood. But they needed 24. So what did they do? Well, sensibly, they just took the people that they had in the four orders and allocated them across the 24 that they needed to fulfill the way that, that uh, David had structured it all. So, but instead of calling them orders, because that wasn't really their family name, they were called courses. So if you were in the original order, if there was an order and you were a member of that order, you were called of the order. And if you'd moved to another family, like Zacharias had done, you'd be considered to be of the course of that family because you weren't actually born into that family at all. And Luke uses exactly the right word. Isn't that remarkable, brethren and sisters? He uses the exactly the right word here where he says that Zacharias was of the course of a buyer, using just the right word. And we'll find right through this record that Luke is particular and very carefully looks to make sure that things are exactly right. Why is that of importance to us, brethren and sisters? The fact that he uses the right word for the course of a buyer, you know, it's another example of the evidence that we can trust the exactness of the Bible. It's not near enough and good is good enough. It's not approximate. It's exact. The things that are in Scripture are exactly right. We find that time and again, which tells us that it's the word of God, doesn't it? And we can put all our trust in it. Now, if we have a look at Zacharias in terms of the context of the priesthood, 
Well, as we said, corruption had been coming into the priesthood a lot. So if you were there to be, if you were there on a, on a, uh, the beginning of a day when a lot of the ceremonies of the, the temple happened, you'd look and see a whole bunch of priests like this, all beautifully dressed in fine linen. There was all the right music. There was all the right implements. They were doing the things that were required in terms of the processes. But there was a big problem. The chief priests were as corrupt as could be because they knew that if as long as they kept Herod happy, they could milk the temple for money. They could milk the other priests that worked for them for money, and they did. And there was a total of 20,000 priests, according to Josephus. And most of them lived in two places. They either lived in Jerusalem or in Jericho. Why do you need a lot of priests in Jerusalem when in fact the priests have only got to be on duty one week in six months? They don't need to be there. What are they supposed to be doing? Well, for the rest of the time, they're supposed to be teaching the people, aren't they? Um, Malachi chapter 2. <clears throat> talks about the role of the teaching priests. Malachi 2 verse 7, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. So the principal role of the priest was not so much to be in the temple doing all the grand things, it was to be in, out amongst the community teaching people about the law. So they needed to be where the people were. So why are they in Jerusalem? Well, you see, that's where the temple is. That's where if you want to get on in the priesthood, you've got to be at Jerusalem. If you're not there, you're not with the hierarchy, you won't get anywhere in your career. And then there was a lot of them at Jericho. Why are they at Jericho? Jericho is not a priestly town, neither was Jerusalem. Why are they at Jericho? Well, there's two reasons they're at Jericho. Because here Jericho was, in fact, Herod's preferred palace his winter palace in Jericho. So if you wanted to carry favour with Herod, well, Jericho was the place to be. So a lot of them went there. And there was, of course, the other benefit that in winter, now Jericho's nice, it's warm. It's not cold like Jerusalem is where it has snow. It's lovely and warm. It's probably about, when it's winter in, 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 in Israel, Jericho is probably sitting at about 27 28 degrees, very pleasant temperature indeed. So they were there. Now, where should have they been? Well, they should have been in the Levitical cities. That's where they should have been. And if we have a look at a map, and I don't know how well you can see that map there, uh, but the Cam and I can see it quite well. <laughs> don't know that it helps you a lot. Um, but the, all the dots there are the, the cities of refuge and the Levitical cities. So the Levitical cities are the ones that are little dots of green. Okay? And in Joshua 21, we're told about where these cities were. So if we go back to Joshua 21, um, verse 3. And the children of Israel gave unto the Levites out of their inheritance at the commandment of Yahweh these cities and their suburbs. And then we find the list of where it 
is the, uh, the priestly cities, verse 19. Um, and all the cities of the children of Aaron the priests were 13 cities with their suburbs. And where are these cities? Verse 13 particularly affects what we're looking at. Um, Thus they gave to the children of Aaron and uh, the priest Hebron with her suburbs to be a city of refuge for the slayer and Libnon with her suburbs and Jatta and Ishtamoa, etc. And I'll show you where they are because we'll just expand this map a little bit. So hopefully you can see that. So this is the area where almost all of those cities of the priests were that were in the area of Judah. Okay? There's no city of the priests at Jerusalem. There's not one at Jericho, but they're here. And guess where Zacharias is living? Come back to Luke chapter 1. He's living where he's supposed to be. Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, because when Mary goes to see Elizabeth, it says, verse 39, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country of Judah. Into the hill country with haste under a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. So where are is Zacharias and Elizabeth? They are in one of these cities... I think it was Hebron, but I can't prove it. In the hill country of Judah, where they were supposed to be. That's what God said they, where they should be. Whereas the rest of the priesthood that were chasing promotion were in Jerusalem or Jericho, because that's where you could get on in your career. And just think what that meant for Zacharias. He didn't get on in his career. He was an ordinary priest. Which meant he didn't get the money that all the others got, or the power... But he was a godly man, wasn't he? So a very significant lesson, I would suggest, brethren and sisters. Zacharias made decisions involving big personal sacrifices. You know, we'd have to think about this, wouldn't he? Say to Elizabeth, are we going to stay here where there's no promotions for me? Or are we going to go to Jerusalem or Jericho where there's lots, lots of promotions and lots of money? And you could have a better house. We could, we could have better clothes and... Better holidays, or are we going to stay here? Well, we're going to stay here because God says so. So to live in the hill country of Judea, where God had said they should be, and not in Jerusalem or Jericho, meant he had, had less money and lesser position in the priesthood. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? Doing what God and our Lord command us to do may cost us in terms of money and position in this world. But Christ promises that we will be rewarded in the kingdom. I want you to have a look at this quote because it does well for us to remind ourselves of what God is going to give to those who are the faithful when the Lord returns. In Matthew 19 and verse 29, where it says, <clears throat> where the Lord says, perhaps we'll read verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, he also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's for the 12 apostles. But listen to this for everyone else. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall 
inherit everlasting life. That's a reminder to us, isn't it, brethren and sisters? Let's hold on to the truth. Let's keep it right. Let's be doing what God and our Lord wants us to do. And we will, we will have that blessing. They will make sure that we do. Now, back in Luke chapter 1, we have the statement about, in verse 6, about Zacharias and Elizabeth. I should also mention that Elizabeth, it says she's of the daughters of Aaron, and her name in Hebrew is Elisheva, which is exactly the same name of the person who is the wife of Aaron. So you can see that what Luke is saying is that it's not just Zacharias who's a priest, but his wife has also got an impeccable background as a priest in, in a priestly family. So verse 6, and it says, And they were both, not just one of them, both righteous before God. That's an astonishing statement, isn't it? They were righteous before God. How many people in the Bible do we know that are described that God says they're righteous? Well, there's Noah, and that's a pretty high standard. And there's not many others. And both of them are in that category. God considers them righteous. It would be wonderful to have that, that attribute said of us, wouldn't it, brethren and sisters, that we were in the same level as Noah in terms of righteousness before God. But, you know, Luke is, is also here using a play on words because, you see, the priests were all of the far party of the Sadducees. Um, we can prove that, Acts chapter 5, verse 17 Actually, it's one of those little statements that Luke puts in Acts, which opens up a whole lot of windows of understanding of <clears throat> how things worked in the times. Um, <clears throat> Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, Then the high priest rose up, and all that were with him, so of the priests, that is, which is the sect of the Sadducees. Which is the sect of the Sadducees? So all the priests are Sadducees. Now the name Sadducee is derived from the, the Hebrew word Sadok, which means righteous. And so in modern day parlance, they would present themselves as we are the righteous ones. That's why we're Sadducees, because we're righteous ones. They were far from it, were they? Because, you see, they were righteous before men. And Luke's pointing out that Zacharias and Elizabeth are righteous before God, and that's what counts. It's not what men consider to be righteous at all. And, you know, it's... And, you know, just think about it, brethren and sisters. The difficulty that Zacharias had in this situation... Here he is, he's a righteous man before God. He's a priest. And he's dealing with a corrupt priesthood. Now, if you and I were working in a business that we discovered was corrupt, we always have the opportunity to leave and go work for somebody else, don't we? But Zacharias can't do that. He's a priest. He's appointed to be a priest. He's appointed by God to do certain work, and he can't change it. So he's got to live with it, doesn't he? That's a very difficult thing, isn't it? 
and with all the temptations to be just like them. So I'll put a little lesson here. Let's be careful to not lead a double life like the Sadducees, because they presented well, but in fact it was all a sham. And you know, it's something that sadly we, in a fleshly thinking way, can do too, because we can present well at ecclesial meetings, can't we? We can dress nicely, say the right things, but in the privacy of our homes, are we perhaps a different sort of person? Because there should be just one person, shouldn't there? Whatever, whatever is on show on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, etc., should be the same as what's on show at home. And that's a real challenge because if we want to be like Zacharias, that's the sort of person that we have to be, isn't it? Righteous at all times before God. So we keep going, and in Luke chapter 1, verse 7, we come to the drama of their lives. So, so far, we've seen an absolutely amazing couple who are both righteous before God, doing what God says. And it says, verse 7, And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And in fact, when you go over to what people said about Elizabeth, what the angel says that they said, in verse 36, this is the angel Gabriel talking to Mary and says, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath conceived a son in her old age. And this is the ninth month with her, who was called the barren one, is what it should say. She was called the barren one. Now think about that. People would walk down the street and see her and say, oh, that's the barren one over there. How do you think she felt? Very demeaning, isn't it? She had to put up with that. And we know that they had prayed for children for years because in verse 13, that's what, um, what the angel says. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard and thy wife shall bear a son. They'd been praying for years and years and still no child. And wouldn't that hurt? Here they are trying as hard as they can to serve God the right way despite an evil society and an evil priesthood that they've got to live in. And it's not changing. You know, when we have a look at it, there's quite a few people that were in that similar situation of being barren women, weren't there? You look at Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Manoah's wife, Hannah, and we added Elizabeth, and there's more. That was just what I could come up with. Were any of them not godly? They were all godly, weren't they? And yet they weren't given children until there was either a prayer answered or the angel gave them a direction. So in the case of Sarah, it was a result of prayer and angelic intervention. Similarly, for example, Manoah's wife. You remember that the angel came to Manoah's wife to tell her that she was going to have a son, and that would be Samson. So, if you think about it from Elizabeth's position and from the position of Zacharias as well, this would be a big drama, wouldn't it? It would be easy to say, well, um, look, God, we're doing our best for you, but you won't give us a child. In fact, do you really care about us? The fact that we've got no children. 
And you can imagine that, that resentment being there. And you'd have to say to yourself, that's wrong. God is always right. I just don't understand why we can't have children. But God did give them an answer, didn't he? And he gave them this huge blessing after a long wait. Long wait. A son who was the forerunner of Messiah. The first prophet in, in 400 years. And as we've said, the greatest prophet ever. You know, brethren and sisters, <clears throat> when troubles come in life, and troubles do come, don't they? I'd like someone, I'll just ask a question. Now, can you put your hand up if you've never had any problems in your life? There's no hands going up, is there? We all have problems. We all have difficulties in life. And yet if there's persistent difficulties, can we feel as though we're being deserted by God? You know, God, I've been working for you. I've been going to the meetings. I've been doing the readings. I've been going to Bible class. And now I'm in trouble and you don't hear. Or we may have been desperately praying for something and may have keenly felt disappointment when our prayer is not granted. Why? We ask, why is this happening? And it's the wrong question to ask, isn't it, brethren and sisters? It's not a case of asking why God won't do what we want we need to remember that God is seeking our eternal good. And why things happen might be beyond our understanding. But think about this. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a list of some amazingly faithful people, isn't there? How many of those had an easy life? None. They all had difficult lives. Why are they got difficult lives? Because God is working with them for their eternal good. But are they going to be rewarded <laughs> to think that they went through all of those sort of things? And God was doing it for their eternal good, you know, which, which is just hard to comprehend. Anyway, in the record, going on, we get introduced to the fact that at a particular time, verse 8 of Luke 1, it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, that order is a different word to the meaning the priestly order. It's in the sequence of his course. So his course would be one week every six months at Jerusalem. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> apparently, according to Josephus, what they used to do is every morning before dawn, there'd be the priests that were allocated on for that, that week. They would all turn up. And they'd be allocated different work. So there'd be lots taken for priests to prepare the altar, others for laying animals on the altar, others to tend the lampstand, and then others to, uh, and one priest to offer incense. And offering incense was the most prized service. That's the one that all the priests thought was the pinnacle, the very peak of the service you could do was to go and offer the incense, which represented prayer to God on behalf of all the people. And they had this uh, method of casting lots, and it's not the way we would do it. You can probably see all these chaps here with, with fingers up and etc. There was this routine that the man out the front would call out a particular number, and everyone would put their hands up with various fingers, and whoever was the one that got the right fingers got the job, if you like. Now, a bit bizarre, but that's how they did it. And in fact, to offer incense for a priest was something you did once in your life. Because when you think about it, there's 20,000 priests. We need 
two people per day, that's 730 in a year. The priests start work when they're 30 years of age and they finish when they die, which in those days was about 70. So you maybe had 40 years of life. You'd only do it once. Apparently they made sure that you only did it once because once you got it, then you were not eligible to stand again to be a priest offering incense. Once in a lifetime. So just think how Zacharias felt when he's the one. The lot has finally come to him. Remember, he's an old man. So for years and years and years, he's been hoping this would happen. And then now it's finally happened. And he's going to go into the temple and offer the incense, representing all the prayers of the people. Psalm 141, verse 2. And bang, Gabriel's there. Wow, wouldn't that be a knockover? He would be so amazed, wouldn't he? And it says, <clears throat> verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, this is my photoshopped idea of how this happened. So <clears throat> don't look too closely because some of the details don't quite hang together. Anyway, um, so here he is. And this is the first angelic appearance in 500 years. So this is not just a special day to him. The, the one time in his lifetime when he gets to offer incense, this is the first time an angel's turned up for 500 years. This is enormous. The last angel that turned up was, in fact, Gabriel, wasn't he? And he appeared to Daniel and gave the 70 weeks prophecy of the coming of Messiah. How about that? And he's back again, and he's going to be telling Zacharias his son's role in the coming of Messiah. Oh, this is just amazing, isn't it? So he gives him a prophecy of the birth and work of John. And we're not going to go into, the, into all that, uh, Zach, uh, that, um, that Gabriel said to Zacharias. We're going to look at that tomorrow. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that Zacharias didn't believe the angel. It's in verse 20, isn't it? And, Zachariah, and Gabriel says to Zacharias, And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Wow. So Zacharias is going to be dumb. When we have a look at verse 62, we discover he's deaf and dumb because when they wanted to ask him what name John should, uh, they should call this baby, which ultimately they called him John, and it says, verse 62, and they made sign to his father how he would have him called. Now, if he was, if you had normal hearing, you'd just talk to him, wouldn't you? So the fact that they had to make signs and write it out tells you that he was deaf as well as dumb. So, but, you know, how could you not believe an angel? I mean, if an angel turned up to you or me, I would naturally think that having seen an angel, that I would never sin again. Because the reality of God would be just so etched into my mind, having seen an angel and talked with an angel. But you know, it's interesting. It doesn't work like that. And here's an example. Because 
Back in the times of the law of Moses, there was some angels that actually ate and spoke with the leaders of Israel. If we go back to Exodus 24, we'll see that when they were at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, and it says, verse 9, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, as they went up into Mount Sinai. They saw the Elohim of Israel, as it should read, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work, etc. Verse 11. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw Elohim, the angels, and did eat and drink. So here's Nadab and Abihu. And they not only get to meet some angels, they get to have a meal with them. And have conversation with them. You'd think that experience would be so etched in your mind that the reality of God is just so palpable that you'd never sin again. And yet, within a year, they've burnt the cinders in the tabernacle because they have been doing sinful things. They have offered strange fire before God that they weren't allowed to do. And if you look at the record, it seems like they were drunk. Drunk on duty in God's house. So it didn't change them, did it? It didn't make them sinless. And I think it's a reminder, brethren and sisters, that there's a lesson in this. And that is, it's the still small voice of the word of God that builds our faith. Yes, angels will help us in our trials of our faith. But the only thing that builds faith is the word of God. You know, in, this is a famous quote. You know this one, Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. <clears throat> Where it says, verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul doesn't say, now faith comes from a range of sources, of this, this, and this, and this. He says, no, it comes from one source. And he divides it up. Faith comes by hearing, that means to listen intently, and listening intently by the word of God. It's the one place it comes from. And that's just, in my experience, so true. That faith only comes from having our time with this book open in front of us and thinking about it and praying about it. That's what builds faith. It really is. Now, as for the fact that Zacharias couldn't believe, I'd struggled with this for a while. Um, <clears throat> I struggled with it before even looking at case of Zacharias, but more looking at the case of Sarah. You might remember Abraham's wife, Sarah. She was told that she was going to have a child and she laughed and just couldn't believe it. And the angel even says to Abraham, you know, what, why, why did Sarah laugh? It will happen. Until I was talking with a sister in Adelaide who had been a barren sister all her life. And she said, Phil, you've got to understand that when you can't have children, there's a whole lot of mental things that start to happen. Like when you're trying to have children and you can't, and it's early days in marriage, she said, what happens is someone says to you, now look, have you tried this? This, this worked for this couple and this couple and this couple. So if you do that, then it, it should work. And she said, what happens is that your, your spirits go, whoa, what up? And you think, wow, okay, yep, let's give it a go. You give it a go and then 
doesn't work. Crash down come your spirits. And she said, now, you'll find, in her experience, that it probably happens 10 times to you because all sorts of people come along with ideas and doctors give you ideas. And, and she said that after a while, it's just so, so hard to cope with going up to great heights of expectation and crashing to the ground again. She said, in the end, you've got to say, I can't live with this. I've just got to accept that I'm not going to have children and nobody's going to tell me anything different because I can't afford to let this happen to me again. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. If you're in that frame of mind, then even if an angel comes along to tell you, you've already rehearsed the lines in your head many times, no, I'm not going to accept anything that might be an answer because I can't cope with the emotional roller coaster. So I'll pass that on to you for what, whatever it's worth, but that might explain why Zacharias just didn't believe. So <clears throat> back in Luke chapter 1, we find that um, <clears throat> after Mary is told by Gabriel that she is going to be the mother of Messiah, which is you know, just an enormous blessing, she goes off to see Elizabeth. Now, it says that they were cousins because the angel says, um, verse 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called the barren one. Now, you can work it out. It would appear as though that Mary and Elizabeth had common um, grandparents. That appears to be the way it works. Now, some people will argue that the word that's used here for cousin is also used for kinsfolk, and it is, that's true, but it would be hardly significant for the angel to say, look, someone in your, in your family your extended family, your, your kinsman, is having this child, and Mary would feel comfortable enough to actually go and visit that person if she didn't know them or if they were too distantly related, etc. So I think cousin is probably pretty right. So, <clears throat> Mary goes to see Elizabeth. Now, we know that Gabriel's appeared to Mary, and um, again, we need to set the scene. When you do, do the maths on the age of Mary at this time, it seems like she's late teens or early 20s. And she's going to go and visit Elizabeth, who's six months further on in her pregnancy. And Elizabeth is perhaps 60s, maybe even 70s in age. And you, you think about, well... <clears throat> It's a, a patriarchal and matriarchal society, you know, where there were stratas. If, if you were an older person, then a younger person would give you great respect, wouldn't they? And if you were an older person, you'd demand that respect. That was the way it worked. But look at this. Look at how Elizabeth reacts to Mary coming to see her. And this, I think, gives us a great insight into Mary's spirituality too. <clears throat> So it says, uh, verse 39, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. Now that's a big journey. She's come all the way from Nazareth, all the way down to perhaps Hebron or somewhere around there. And came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she spake with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. 
And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Or as the ESV says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What a humble attitude that is of Elizabeth. Here she's talking to a woman that's perhaps 50 years her junior. And she, just, she says, look, this is a great honor that you've come to see me. Wow. Because she believes that this woman is going to bear the son of God. And she's, a, she's an important person. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to admit that she is a greater and more important person than me. What a wonderful, humble attitude that is. She doesn't see Mary as a rival, but notice this also. What an understanding of the whole purpose of all of this stuff. But John is coming into the world, and he's going to be the forerunner of Messiah. And what's Messiah going to do? Well, she's got it all figured out. She's worked out that Messiah just doesn't come as the great king of Israel, like the rest of the community thought, that would deliver them from the Romans, that he's actually going to die and be resurrected. And then when the kingdom comes, she's going to be raised. Because, notice what she says, that the mother of my Lord should come to me. This Lord is not even born. He, he, he's in the womb of his mother. He's only a few weeks old, if that. And... She's not going to be around to see him crucified, is she? Elizabeth's going to be dead many years beforehand. So she appreciates that he's going to come as prophesied, that he is going to fulfill the requirements of Messiah, that he's going to die, that he's going to be resurrected, that he will come again in a kingdom and she will be resurrected, and that's her Lord. Wow! Isn't that some understanding? Isn't that just amazing? To think that this sister figured all this out and she's got two announcements from Gabriel to work it all out from and she's figured it out. I think she's an amazing sister. And you know, when you look at all that and when we look at tomorrow at what Zacharias has to say in his psalm, I think we can really see why God chose Zacharias and Elizabeth to be the mother of the greatest prophet ever to introduce his son into the world because they were supremely spiritual people. They were going to give John just exactly the right education in not just what the law said, which is what the priests always did, but what the spirit of the law was about and what the prophets said. So what an amazing woman she is. Well, we'll just conclude with just a summary of some of the lessons that we've looked at tonight, brethren and sisters. Zacharias and Elizabeth had to endure the harsh and oppressive rule of Herod and the corruption in the priesthood. Lesson for us, we can thank God that our governments and rulers still allow us freedom of worship and faith. Luke uses exactly the terms for Zacharias' work in the temple, tells us that we can trust that the Bible is accurate in all things. Zacharias and Elizabeth made big personal sacrifices in living where God said they should. For us, doing what Christ has commanded us may cost us too, but we will be rewarded in the kingdom. Living righteously before God, despite being surrounded by the hypocrisy of other priests, is what Zacharias had to do. And we should be careful to demonstrate godliness in public, in our public and our private lives too. They maintained their trust in God, despite not, God not answering their prayers for a child for many years. 
So for us, when troubles come in life, we should not feel that God doesn't care. He does care. He seeks our eternal good. None of the faithful in Hebrews 11 had easy lives. Zacharias didn't believe Gabriel's promise that they should have a son. And if we were to see an angel, it wouldn't necessarily give us unshakable faith. Faith comes only from the word of God. Elizabeth showed absolute faith that the baby Jesus would become her Lord in the kingdom. And we too can have confidence that Christ will return and we can be in the kingdom if we genuinely strive to serve our Lord now. Why is he going to be a Nazarite? Well, I think it's again drawing the distinction that he is going to be a holy man of God, but he's not going to follow that evil system of priesthood that was around him at that time. And then we get to a point <clears throat> that I think is very significant in understanding about the work of John the Baptist, that he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. So in verse 17, Gabriel says, and he shall go before him, that is, go before Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he could have just left it there and said, well, you know, that's enough. That's what he'll be doing. But he actually goes on to quote, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he's actually quoting, if you're it's, uh, I'm pretty sure it's in the margin. Yes, it is. Cited from Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6. And yes, he, he quotes that. Um, hang on, I got myself a little bit messed up here in slides. Let me just get to the right slide here. Now <clears throat> um, we'll go to the next slide being. <clears throat> so here's the comparison between Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 and Luke 1 verse 17. And you can see that it's very much the same. The angel Gabriel says to turn the hearts of the children, fathers to the children, that's in the right hand column, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And that's slightly different to what is said in Malachi 4 verse 6 of the latter day work of Elijah, when he returns to bring Israel, that's the Jews that are dispersed, back into the land, which we know is his latter-day job. And that's a, a wonderful subject to explore, but of course we don't have time to do that today. But the key thing is that there's actually two Elijahs. Now, I don't want to be cute about this, but there's Elijah before Mount Horeb, who's a man that is very laconic, doesn't say much, austere, uh, aloof, and then there's the Elijah after Mount Horeb. And you remember that Elijah went to Mount Horeb to plead with God and said, I, even I only am left. And look at Israel, there's not anyone righteous, I'm just the last one. And God takes him through the experience of seeing the earthquake and the wind and the fire. And that didn't draw him out of the cave that he was in. But the still small voice did, didn't it? And then God says to Elijah, now, there's actually 7,000 people that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. 
and you think that you're the only one left? There's 7,000 of them. And I think this was a great turning point for Elijah because after Mount Horeb, instead of being an aloof man that was lived very much alone, as you can see in the second column, he's a different man. He's involved with the schools of the prophets. And for example, in, in <clears throat> when he's about to be taken away in 2 Kings, where's he going? He's going to visit all these schools of the prophets. He's involved with people. And there's no mention of him being involved with the schools of the prophets before this. In fact, when uh, Obadiah met Elijah, he said, Now, has it not been told, my Lord, how I have hid a hundred men of the prophets by fifties in a cave? And Elijah hadn't heard about that. He hadn't been involved with the schools of the prophets. But now it's all different. Second Kings chapter 2. Verse 1, and it came to pass when Yahweh would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Verse 2, and Elijah said unto Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for Yahweh hath sent me to Bethel. And when they get to Bethel, who's there? Verse 3, and the sons of the prophets which were at Bethel came forth to Elisha. And you know the story, he goes through three areas of the sons of the prophets to meet them, in effect giving them his last journey to see them all before he was departing because he knew he was going to be departing so he's a very different man isn't he second point on the slide that i think he learnt from the still small voice of the word of god that in that in the schools of the prophets that would change hearts it wasn't the fire coming down from heaven on the altar at mount carmel that was going to change hearts like he thought at that time initially so I would suggest to you that it's quite a different Elijah that is after Mount Horeb. And he's the one that is going to be doing the latter day work of turning Israel. Because notice what it says about him coming in the spirit and power of Elijah in Malachi 4. He shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. It's all about speaking to their hearts, isn't it? And that's what we find in John, that he's like the latter-day Elijah is going to be, the second Elijah, as I would term him, the one that is going to turn hearts and turn people to God. <clears throat> now, um, yeah, sorry, I've got myself a bit tied, uh, messed up in my slides again. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yeah, just at the bottom of this slide, you'll see Elijah is to lead the second exodus of Israel um, through the wilderness. And again, let's have a look at this quotation in Hosea chapter 2 about uh, what God is going to do, because this is very much what um, John the Baptist did. Hosea 2 and verse 14. And we won't go into it. The context is of the second exodus. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, that is, Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And if you've got a margin, you'll see it means to her heart. And then verse 15, the result, I will give her the vineyards from thence, the valley of Achor, she'll be a door of hope. This is talking about Israel coming across the Jordan and then up through the valley of Achor, which was a cursed valley because of Achan, and now it becomes a door of hope. 
and she shall be, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. So that's the latter day work of Elijah, and that's the spirit of things in which John the Baptist is going to be going to be working. So. There's some very interesting parallels, nevertheless, between Elijah and John the Baptist. So, <clears throat> both Elijah and John came at a time of extreme wickedness. Both men dwelt away from the cities. Elijah was out in various places in the countryside, and John was in the wilderness of Judea. Both dressed differently to others, and we'll look at that in our study this afternoon. Both pronounced judgments. Elijah gave way to Elisha, whose name means the salvation of Yahweh. John gave way to Jesus. Yahweh will save. Almost identically the same sort of name, isn't it? Elijah's mantle changed hands at the Jordan River. It was that Elijah went across the Jordan River and then he went and Elisha came back with Elijah's mantle, didn't he? And smote the river and it divided and he went through. Jesus was manifested to John at Jordan, the same place as we'll look at this afternoon. John denounced Herod and Herodias, which we'll look at in our fifth study. And Elijah denounced Ahab and Jezebel. So there's just so many parallels between the work of Elijah and the work of John the Baptist that really is quite interesting. Now, we're going to have a look now at... <clears throat> the psalm of Zacharias in uh, verses 68 to 79 of Luke chapter 1. Now, I might just sort of draw the conclusion before we start on this, and that is, if you ever want to go to a section of scripture that shows that the Bible is inspired, this would have to be one of the greatest, but it's not immediately obvious. So we'll just work through this, and I think you'll be quite amazed at the amount of detail that is in here. Firstly, the context... Oh, hang on. I've really got myself messed up today. You can tell I'm, I'm not thinking very well. I haven't gone through the birth of John, and that's critical. So, back. Back a little bit. Um, <clears throat> um, Luke 1, verse 56. And Mary abode with Elizabeth three months and returned to her own house. And verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered and brought forth a son. And of course, that would be an absolutely joyous event, wouldn't it, brethren and sisters? Here, this old couple, and they're having a child. Not only were they promised it, but now the child is actually born. Quite amazing for an older person to be able to deliver a child like that. And verse 58, and her neighbours and cousins heard that the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And then we come to the naming of the child, the time of the circumcision. Verse 59, it came to pass on the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child, and of course that was under the law that you had to circumcise a male child on the eighth day, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. Now, um, Mr. Edersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, records how that this was a great ceremony and that naming happened on the day of circumcision because... It was Abraham who was circumcised, and when he was circumcised, 
his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. So it became the Jewish tradition that when a child was circumcised, that's when you named the child. So that's why that's happening there. So all the, all the people are gathered together, and apparently it was quite a, quite a ceremony. There was readings given. There was um, uh, food enjoyed together like a, a miniature feast. And they're determined to call his name Zacharias after his father. And his mother speaks up and says, no, not so. He should be called John. Well, that tells us something important, doesn't it? It means that Zacharias has managed to convey to her what Gabriel said to him. Because you remember, he comes home after his period in the temple and he can't speak. And he can't hear either. He's deaf and dumb. So obviously, what Gabriel had said is something that he's written down and he's probably dying to tell Elizabeth about this, you know, to write down and say, now, Elizabeth, this is what Gabriel said to me. And of course, we've only got a summary in Luke. Gabriel's words would have been more extensive than that. So he's writing all this out. So he has definitely done that and conveyed it to Elizabeth because it says that she knows that his name's got to be called John. And furthermore, it's so important that she's prepared to stand up in, a, in effect in the ceremony and say, whoa, hang on, uh, I'm sorry, I might be only a sister, but calling him Zacharias is wrong, his name's got to be John. You know, that'd be pretty challenging for a sister to do in those days, wouldn't it? Because there was quite a ceremony of, you know, quite a lot of men running the ceremony and, you know, that would be a, a bit challenging. So, <clears throat> they object, verse 61, and say, none of the kindred is called by this name, and so they made signs to, to um, Zacharias, and Zacharias is, writes, sorry, verse 63, he wrote, his name is John, not he shall be called John, his name is John. In other words, it doesn't matter what you decide, <laughs> this is his name, this is his real name, which is John. And immediately, verse 64, his mouth was opened and he spake and praised God. Now we'll get on to the psalm, which I started on before, sorry about that. So, he's going to praise God. Now, very interesting. There's no hint of resentment in what Zacharias says in these words that he's resenting what God or Gabriel did to him in making him deaf and dumb. Because he's been deaf and dumb for nine months, hasn't he? It's a long time. Think of what a lonely world that would be. You can't hear anybody. You can't tell anybody anything. You're so isolated because when there's a conversation happening, you can't be in it. You don't even know what people are talking about. And they have to write things down for you. But the great advantage would be you've got plenty of time to think because you can't do anything else. Normal role of Zacharias would have been when he was at home, he would be teaching the people, wouldn't he? Can't teach the people. When you're dumb, you can't say a word to them. You can't even listen to their problems because you're deaf. So he's all in his own little world thinking. And what we get here, brethren and sisters, I suggest to you, is his nine months of thinking about all this. And he gets another ingredient when Mary turns up. And we know that he knows the words that Gabriel has said to Mary because he actually refers to it. We'll come to that in a little while. So that means that Mary has written down for him what, what Gabriel said to her. So he's now got two inputs, hasn't he? He's got what Gabriel said to him and what Gabriel said to Mary. And he's put it all together and he's worked it out. And he's so excited about this 
obviously very excited that they're a new parent. But you notice, even though they've got this lovely little boy, John, it's not his first words, is it? He talks about amazingly important things. And it's not until we get to verse 76, he said, and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. So the priority is not about his son, you know, our darling little boy. He's everything. It's different. He keeps God in perspective. And, you know, I think that's an important lesson for us, too, in our lives. Let's keep the work of God in Christ as the first priority in our lives. Yes, family is very important, but God must be first of all, mustn't he? And so easily we can be drawn into a focus that is not 100% for God because we're involving our attention with family. Now, another very important aspect of this psalm that Zacharias gives is his inclusive language. In verse 69, he talks about for us. In verse 71, to our. In other words, he's involving himself with the people. And the people are really struggling under all of this evil that's happening with Herod the Great and the corruption in the priesthood and all sorts of other things that were their unfortunate lot. Very different to the attitude of the chief priests. And if we were to look at John 7 verse 49, there's the chief priest saying, this people are cursed. That's their attitude to the people. They saw themselves as far above the people. I mean, these people don't even keep the law properly. And the Pharisees had great contempt for people who didn't keep not only the law, but the oral traditions. He's very different. He's inclusive. Now, he's a priest, isn't he, Zacharias? His whole life's been a priest. But try to spot any reference in here to law, the law of Moses, or sacrifice. Not there at all, because he has realised in this nine months of silence that salvation from God has got nothing to do with the law. The law was never intended to be a means for salvation. It's all about God's promises and God's mercy and God's grace. And we'll see that just pour out of him as we go through this psalm. And I think I've covered this point that he used his nine months of silence to, um, <clears throat> to work out what it what God was saying to him. Now, <clears throat> another point. This, the psalm is, this, what I've termed the psalm, is structured as a psalm. Apparently it's in Hebraistic form, phrasing and rhythm. And of course, with Luke, Luke's record is, we've only got a summary. We can't believe, I, I would suggest to you, that Zacharias, after being quiet for nine months, finally gets to speak and, and blurts out in about 15 seconds this, this little psalm, and that's it. No, I think this is more after the, the, the style of Luke where he records speeches and he gives you a compressed version. He gives you a summary, but he gives you all the little hooks to be able to open it up because he gives you the allusions to all the scripture passages that are quoted. And that allows us to open it up. So it's really amazing. Now, <clears throat> this psalm has a chiastic structure, which... Um, if you want to know more about that, it's uh, on a website called chiasmusexchange.com. And that's a website that is run by Brother Stephen Palmer. And it goes through the structure of a lot of Old Testament and New Testament scriptures that are truly amazing. And this is one of them. 
So this is how the psalm is structured, a chiasm. Now, if you haven't heard of a chiasm before, it's a sequence of ideas that is presented and then reflected back in reverse order. And the key idea is at the center. So if you look at this, uh, idea A is talks about that God has visited and redeemed his people. And if you see at the very end, A appears again, the day spring on high hath visited us. Idea B talks about a horn of salvation, and that's reflected back towards the end in idea B, knowledge of salvation. And it goes through, I won't go, you see, idea C has got dealing with prophets, and that's at both ends. Idea D is about enemies, salvation from our enemies, delivered from our enemies. And then idea E at the very center is the holy covenant and the oath which he swear. And that's the central idea. The central idea is salvation is coming because of God's covenant to Abraham and the oath which he swore. Nothing to do with the law, which would be a huge realization for someone who was a priest and absolutely soaked in the law of Moses. But you know, when you step back and look at this, you say, wow, what a structure. That is just amazing. No ordinary person would be able to write this sort of structure. Yes, he's speaking with the Holy Spirit and this explains it, but what an example of the inspiration of the scriptures. So lesson, such an intricate structure shows God is the author. It is another proof that we can trust in the inspiration of the scriptures. And when we talk about the inspiration of the scriptures, it isn't just that it's in without error and that there's no mistakes in it. It's much more than that, isn't it? We can see the hand of God in some amazingly intricate passages. And this is just one of those. Now, through this psalm that Zacharias gives, there is a multitude of allusions to scriptures. There's around about 25 allusions to scriptures in the space of 11 verses. It's astonishing. Now, the next slide... This outlines the thought flow, and I'm not going to go through this because it'd be, it'd take too long. But I want to just draw your attention to the right-hand column, which is the scriptures that are quoted or alluded to. And it's just amazing. And it's not just that he's quoting the scripture as in the nice words. He's quoting the context as well, which comes out. So... Um, I've included this in the slide pack so that if any of you want to sort of dig further and look at this, do your own study on it, this, this is, uh, shows the, the flow of thought that's going through the psalm, which helps to unlock how it all works. So what we're going to do now is just go through some of these verses. If we went through every one of these verses, well, we'd be here to well after lunch. So I don't think that um, doing that is a higher priority than lunch. Um, so <clears throat> we'll keep it short. Now, the first thing he says in Luke 1 verse 68 is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which would, of course, when you put it into the Hebrew context, blessed be Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Now, what an amazing way to start, because that expression is the expression used at 
major events in Israel's history. Absolutely phenomenal events. So I've listed some of them there. First Chronicles 16 about bringing the ark to Zion. First Kings 1 verse 48, the coronation of Solomon. First Kings 8 verse 15, the dedication of the temple. So let's just go to the dedication of the temple so that you can see uh, that's in First Kings chapter chapter eight, and we'll go to verse fourteen for context. And you'll remember that Solomon's temple was built, and before it came into operation, there was this um, ceremony of dedication, and Solomon is a central part to it. So in verse fourteen, when everything's in place. And it says, verse 14 of 1 Kings 8, And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. And you've got to imagine this in your mind. Here's this massive new temple. All of Israel is gathered. So there's now like 2 million people. It's absolutely packed. Solomon is up on some platform so that people can see him. And he's going to begin his prayer. How does he begin Verse 15, and he said, Blessed be Yahweh Elohim of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it. In other words, the temple's now built. But see how he introduces it. Blessed be Yahweh Elohim of Israel. And that is an expression that is used in most of the great events in the Old Testament. It is used to conclude three out of the five books of the Psalms, and I could go on with a list. So it's quite a phenomenal statement. And what he's saying, what he's implying by this, is that this birth of John and the coming birth of Jesus Christ is one of those absolutely great events in history, in the history of Israel. And he's absolutely right, isn't he? Because we look back on it and say, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ was a hugely important event. It was the beginning of salvation. And the birth of John was hugely important because he was the forerunner that introduced Jesus Christ. But he didn't know all that, did he? I mean, he'd been told it. It's one thing to be told it. But, you know, when you're nursing this little eight-day-old baby in your arms who can do nothing, you've got to believe that that's all going to happen. And he did. He really did. So it's really quite amazing. So the raising up of John and of Christ was one of those great moments for Israel. Now, the next thing he says, back in Luke chapter 1, and verse 60, 68, the second half of the verse, for he had visited and redeemed his people. Those words are taken from Israel coming out of Egypt, visited and redeemed his people. Exodus 4 verse 31. And the people believed when they heard that Yahweh had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped. And this is what they did in response to when Moses came to Israel in Egypt and told them that God was going to bring them out. That's what they did. So that, and it's used several times, this expression visited. That's about Moses coming and visiting, representing God, visiting Israel in Egypt. And the redeemed expression is drawn from a, 
a, a variety of places, but one of them is Exodus 15, when they had come forth out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. Exodus, perhaps we'll read this, Exodus 15. <clears throat> So Exodus 15, starting at verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hath led forth thy people, which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. So, what Zacharias is seeing here is that this work of John being born and of Jesus being born is a great work just like Israel being delivered out of Egypt. But he also captures some of the thought in these words we've just read. You notice that they're put in the past tense. Verse 13 of Exodus 15, Thou in thy mercy hath led forth thy people, Thou hast redeemed. Redeemed. The redemption's finished. But no, it's not. They've still got to go through 40 years in the wilderness, don't they? But as far as what Moses is seeing, is, it's as good as done. And it says, And then guided them in thy strength, past tense, unto thy holy habitation, which is the, the promised land. But it hadn't happened. But it's good as done as far as Moses is concerned. And so what we find is that Zechariah picks up the same thing. For he says, For he hath, past tense, visited and redeemed his people. And that's remarkable. He says it's all done. He sees the work of John the Baptist has come and been achieved, and the work of Jesus Christ has come and been achieved. It's all done as far as he can see. One child has been born and the other isn't even born yet. Wow! faith is that it's just amazing isn't it <clears throat> lesson for us i think brethren and sisters we hope for the return of christ in the kingdom don't we god has promised it and the fact that god's promised it doesn't that make it a certainty that the kingdom will come and do we live with that certainty in our mind that the kingdom is as good as come because it's going to happen it's not as though there's a doubt absolutely sure isn't it that's the same sort of thinking isn't it that's what we need to have in our minds isn't it which Zacharias clearly had now gets even better how is this visiting and redemption going to happen on what basis is it going to happen the promises to David now if you were a priest your natural inclination at this point would be to say, well, how is all this deliverance going to happen? It's going to become by the law. And it's about obedience to the law. You've got to keep all these laws. And then you'll be pleasing to God, and then that's how salvation comes. No. He's realised that it comes through the promises to David. How do we know that? Because verse 69, and raised up, and horn of salvation unto us. Now he's quoting, he's alluding two scripture passages here. He's alluding to 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 to 3, which is a summary towards the end of 2 Samuel. You remember that some of the last chapters in 2 Samuel, which is about the end of David's life, 
refer to things that happened earlier in David's life. And this is one of those where <clears throat> it talks about that Yahweh had delivered David out of the hand of all his enemies. So we're going to have a look at that. 2 Samuel 22 verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> and David spake unto Yahweh the words of this song in the day that Yahweh had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. Now this is all in, also in Psalm 18. <clears throat> and he said, sorry, had, had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. Um, <clears throat> and he said, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield. And here's the quote. And the horn of my salvation. A horn represents power, doesn't it, in the Bible? You look at the beasts in Daniel, and they've got horns, haven't they? And what do those horns represent? The power of those particular uh, nations that are being identified. So he's seeing, or David is seeing, that God is the power of salvation to him. Now, if we were to look at the context of this, we'd see that in the previous verses, <clears throat> in chapter 19 through 21, it describes David's victories over all the enemy nations. But David summarises it this way, that God has given him victory, delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies. What's the real root cause of all the enemies? It's sin, isn't it? It's iniquity in men's hearts that causes wars. That is the essence of the real enemy. And that's what Zacharias is going to explain. Now, he's also alluding to Psalm 132. Therefore, I will make the horn of David to bud. Yahweh hath sworn in truth unto David. What's that about? That's the, about the bringing of the ark to Zion, Psalm 132, which is prophetic of the, the full redemption that happens when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, I'm sorry I'm going a bit quick through this, but I don't want to keep us here for a long time, but I want to give you a, uh, a bit of a flavour of what this psalm has got in it. And then Zacharias in verse 69 of Luke 1 says, it's in the house of his servant David, where he's alluding to psalm, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 7 verse 26, which is, after David has been given these promises and he comes before God in the temple and says, let thy name be magnified forever and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. So what Zacharias has done is he's shown that these two little boys that are coming along, one born, one about to be born, is going to be fulfilling these promises. And yes, the promises to David were there of a seed that would come where it says that Yahweh would be his father, and he's figured it all out. <clears throat> now, I'm just going to skip a few verses here. You notice we're in verse 69. I'm just going to skip through to verse 72, because we can't cover the lot. Now, <clears throat> verse 72 and verse 73 are in the centre part of the chiasm. You remember the structure that went in and out like that? So this is coming to the central idea. In verse 72 to 73. And it says, To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He's quoting Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. Yahweh thy God shall keep unto thee 
the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy father. So you can see exactly the same words being used here. So what's it saying? Salvation comes not just because of the promises to David, but their root is the promises to Abraham. Salvation comes from the promises to the fathers, not through the law. Now, this has got an important thing to us, an important lesson for us too, brethren and sisters. When Zacharias is writing, the promises to Abraham were 2,000 years old. That's a long time. That's the same sort of time as it is from where we are looking back to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And what Zacharias is saying is God made a promise back then and 2,000 years later, he's fulfilling it in bringing forward the birth of John and the birth of Jesus Christ. God hasn't forgotten his promises. It's not like it's something, oh, well, you know, God promised that ages ago, but time's gone on and it's not really relevant anymore. It's not like that, is it? When God makes a promise, he delivers it. Thousands of years later, but he will deliver it. And that's an important assurance to us too, brethren and sisters, because we depend on those promises, don't we? I put a little quote here, Galatians 3.29. And you know the sequence that's in Galatians. Galatians 3.16, that God made promises to Abraham and to his seed, not seed as, as many, but as of one, which is Christ. And so in verse 29, Paul writes, And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises. Our salvation depends on the promises to Abraham, doesn't it? We're only going to be heirs to the promises inasmuch as we are Abraham's seed. We depend on that promise. And so we can really trust, can't we, brethren and sisters, that God is going to deliver that promise to us too. It's an important thing. And so what Zacharias is showing is that God does deliver his promises, which means salvation to us. And he's not only talked about the promise, but he talks now about the oath, verse 73. The oath which he swore unto our father Abraham. So what's the point of the oath? Well, the oath is drawn from Genesis 22. And the oath gives more certainty to the promises. This, uh, Genesis 22, verse 16, I'll put a little summary here. By myself, I have sworn, saith Yahweh. So God swears by his very existence, which is picked up in Hebrews. For thou hast done this, because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And how is this blessing going to come about? Quoted in Acts chapter 3. It's the turning of everyone away from his iniquities. So the key to salvation, which is the promises to Abraham, and his swearing of an oath, is all about Jesus Christ is going to give the victory. And by being in Jesus Christ, we can have a change of nature in the kingdom, can't we? Where iniquity is no longer in our hearts, where we no longer can possibly sin. Isn't that wonderful? And Zacharias is seeing this. We know it all because of the New Testament. He's got none of that. But he's picked it out from what Gabriel has said to him and what Gabriel said to Mary. And he's thought about the scriptures to speak and he can suddenly see it's all fitting together. Now, there's another dimension to this that is absolutely astonishing. This is just an aside on these two verses. 
You notice these three key words, to perform the mercy promised to the fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore unto our father. That's all the names of John and Zacharias and Elizabeth. Isn't that amazing? Zacharias' name in Hebrew, he's Zachariah in Hebrew, Yahweh remembers. Elizabeth is Elisheva, the oath of God. And John's name is Yahweh is gracious or merciful. Sometimes translated both ways. Isn't that astonishing? So there's just a little touch of Zechariah saying, well, isn't this remarkable? Our names are all fitting in with what God has purposed all these years ago. And there it is. Now, we'll skip a few more verses, brethren and sisters, because otherwise we'll be here a long time. Verse 76. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. So John is to prepare the way for Christ and he's going to, um, <clears throat> now shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. He's also quoting Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 verse 3. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. So he's picked up that connection because he's been told that this son John is going to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people. He's citing Psalm 82. Yahweh hath made known his salvation. And also Jeremiah 31, verse 33 to 34. They shall all know me, for I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. I'm going to skip over that one without giving much more introduction. And we'll move through to the last of these. The last one is, okay, verse 79. <clears throat> now, this is his concluding verse, and what a verse this is. This is amazing. Verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So divine light is going to guide us to shalom. That's the word that would be used for peace. So he's citing Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And this is quoted of Christ in Matthew 4 verse 16, when he began his ministry, when he was at, um, uh, at the synagogue in Nazareth. So we know what it's talking about. And yet you can see how with these key words that Zacharias is alluding to this. There's going to be divine light. Jesus Christ is that light that's going to come into the world. And then <clears throat> to guide our feet into the way of peace or shalom. It's alluding to Isaiah 57, 52 verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and that publisheth peace. Again, a prophecy of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he concludes with shalom. Why does he finish with this word? Well, there's a lot in this word. The Hebrew word shalom carries not the, only the idea of peace, but it carries the idea of unity and completeness and harmony with God and man. And that's why even today, when you're, when you're in Jerusalem or in Israel, you'll find that the Jews will greet you with shalom. Because it's not just have peace. It carries this big, big idea of being 
totally in harmony with God and therefore having peace. And of course, no enemies exist because human nature is all gone. It's a huge concept, isn't it? So he concludes with that. Why does he do that? Because as a priest for years, he would have given the great blessing of Numbers 6, verse 26, <clears throat> where it says, Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh lift up his face upon thee and give thee peace. Shalom. And of course, this is the blessing he couldn't give at the temple because it was the role of the priest that offered the incense to come out from the temple and the people were all waiting and he would give this blessing to the people, but he couldn't do it. And now he can. So isn't that remarkable? But it also encapsulates the complete purpose of God. That's, that's where the kingdom will be. And for us in the kingdom, a total harmony with God, total peace. Isn't that just a wonderful way to finish this beautiful little psalm? So I hope that's been of interest, brethren and sisters. I hope it's not been one of those exercises of trying to drink from the fire hydrant, so to speak, because there's so much material here. Um, but there is. It's just amazing what's in there. And doesn't it impress us with how amazing is the inspiration of the scriptures? That there is all of this packed in there. I don't think any ordinary person could possibly write something like that and structure it the same way. So anyway, there's some lessons in this for us. Zacharias was not resentful that Gabriel had made him deaf and dumb for his unbelief. So we also need to be careful that we're accepting of Yahweh's chastening. Hebrews 12 verse 6, Yahweh chastens those whom he loves. And we will all experience that, won't we? And we can be resentful, but rather we should be accepting. The Psalm of Zacharias is such an amazingly structured chiasm, another evidence that the Bible is inspired, which tells us we can place all our trust in the Bible as being God's infallible word. Zacharias saw the birth of John and the future birth of Jesus as God having visited and redeemed his people, a work as good as done. And we can look in faith, can't we, to the return of Christ and the kingdom and know it's an absolute certainty, brethren and sisters. God has promised it. It's as good as done. All we've got to do is wait for it to happen. Zacharias saw that the redemption in Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of God's promises and his oath to Abraham from 2,000 years earlier. What an assurance to us. Our salvation is bound up in the promises to Abraham. God will keep these promises too. We can rely on it. Just because thousands of years have gone by doesn't mean God won't keep the promises he will. And Zacharias finished his psalm with shalom, peace and unity and completeness and harmony, the essence of the character of the kingdom. And what a wonderful shalom we have to hope for, to be in total harmony and unity with God for the ages of eternity. We get introduced to John, as in John the Baptist, 
in the last verse of Luke chapter 1, which was drawn to our attention this morning, where it simply says in verse 80 of Luke 1, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Now this verse spans, as I've put on the screen, around about 27 years. We'll look at the chronology a bit later. From when the child is born until his showing in the wilderness. And, you know, it's interesting that where it talks about the showing in the wilderness, showing unto Israel, the word's actually exhibition. You notice it doesn't say that he was in the wilderness till the day of his voice appearing in Israel, but his showing, his exhibition. And what we're going to look at today is the exhibition of John. And then tomorrow morning, by way of exhortation, we're going to look at the voice of John, the voice crying in the wilderness. Now, we tend to think about John as the voice but there's a big, big point being made about John, the exhibition here in the wilderness. Now, <clears throat> by this time, Zacharias and Elizabeth are well and truly dead. In fact, it would appear that perhaps they died while John was in his teens. If you think about that, and he's now 27, he's been in the wilderness for perhaps... 12, 13, 14 years. Long time to be in the wilderness, isn't it? But he's been there for that length of time. And you can see the picture I've picked there is typical of the wilderness of Judea. You can see in the distance there is the Dead Sea. You can see what the ground looks like in a beautiful fertile territory, isn't it? Not one little tree struggling to try to survive. And that's the situation in which he's living. Now, how did John grow in spirit in the wilderness? Well, I would suggest to you, brethren and sisters, that may, it might have happened like this. If you come over to Isaiah chapter 50, where it talks about what the father did to his own son. <clears throat> so in John, sorry, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord Yahweh hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. So we have in our mind's eye a picture of what this means, don't we? That Jesus Christ got the word of God coming to him into his mind in the mornings. He was, that was what woke him up. And God gave him instruction and taught him things. And what was the purpose of that? Was it for judgment on people? No, it wasn't. That he should be able to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And I think the same sort of thing must have happened to John. That he was woken in the morning because the word of God came to him, didn't it? And it didn't come sort of, you know, in, in the mail. Here's a letter and the mailman delivers it to you. That's not how it worked at all. And we'll look later and see that. <clears throat> that is a common expression used in the Old Testament, the word of God coming to someone who's a prophet. So that's my, my vision of how things worked for John, that it was, in fact, an angelic vision, angelic words, first thing in the morning, 
to give him some instruction. So if you've got a different view, please let me know. I'd be interested to discuss it. It's interesting also, brethren and sisters, that the Apostle Paul, whoops, I went back, went off too far. The Apostle Paul was taught directly of Christ in the deserts in Sinai. Galatians 11, verse 11 and 12. The gospel which was preached of me is not after man, says Paul. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And we think that he was some years in this territory of the wilderness. Now, where it says Arabia, um, <clears throat> that, that's not the Arabia that we know of, the Arabian Peninsula, but in the, in the time of Christ and the time of the, uh, uh, of the Apostle Paul, the territory of we would know as the Sinai Peninsula was considered part of Arabia. So that's, of course, where he went. So there's a precedent, if you like, for thinking that, that John could have been educated in the wilderness. Now, the next thing we know about John is in um, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which <clears throat> our brother Max has uh, quite well painted the situation into today's terminology. Instead of putting all the greats of that time, we put the greats of this time. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's Luke has done a brilliant job, hasn't he, painting the picture. The here are all the greats. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. He was virtually the ruler of the then known world, wasn't he? And then we come down to the area of where John's ministry would be. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. And Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. And also the region of Perea. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea in the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest. The word of God came unto John the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. It came to a man who's a nobody, and it came to him in a place that's nowhere. He wasn't in Rome. He wasn't in any of the great cities. He wasn't in a palace. He was out in the wilderness. You know, what a dramatic contrast that is. And as Brother Max has well said, he's taken a, a leaf right out of my notes, does God give the truth of the gospel to the great men of today? No, he doesn't. It's been given to us ordinary people. And what an enormous privilege and a blessing that is. You know, these great people of today, they're going to be, they'll pass off the scene, won't they? They'll live a few years and they're dead. And they haven't got the biggest treasure that there is, the hope of life eternal, which we have. So... <clears throat> Just for the sake of those on Zoom, I'm going to skip a slide now <laughs> so that you'll get the right slide. <clears throat> what do we know about Tiberius Caesar and all these other greats? And why does Luke also describe and list them? Well, it helps us to understand the times. It's much the same as when we were looking at Zacharias and Elizabeth. It talked about that it was in the days of Herod the Great. So we can build up a picture of what the times are like. And it's the same thing here. So what was Tiberius Caesar like? Well, he was actually one of the darkest and most reclusive of the Caesars. He'd killed thousands. He lived for 10 years, the 10 years covering this time, in the island of Capri. And he indulged in all manner of sexual perversions 
and I wouldn't dare relate to you the sort of things that are recorded in the historians about what he did. It's just absolutely perverse. And because he's so occupied in doing all of this self-gratification stuff, this evil stuff, he's neglecting the governance of the empire. So what does that mean? It means those that are in the tetrarchs in various places can do exactly what they want. Tiberius is not going to hold them too much to account. So that's Tiberius Caesar. Then we've got Pontius Pilate. And he was governor of Judea from AD 26 to 37. And he had largely a free reign. And he provoked the Jews. He put the Roman eagle in the temple, which was something else that had happened before. He levied heavy taxation. He killed Jews on a whim. Luke 13 verse 1 talks about, Christ says, Now the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now he didn't like these Galileans and he had them killed in the temple. Wow, you know, that's just awful, isn't it? Now, it was thought by a lot of the critics that Pontius Pilate never existed, you know, that it was just a figment of Luke's imagination, that he was a man that, that just simply did not exist. Well, in 1961, at Caesarea, there was a, an inscription found, brethren and sisters, and there's a sort of uh, an exploded view of what the inscription on this stone looks like, <clears throat> and you can see circled is the word Pilatus which is the Latin for Pilate. So it's now established beyond doubt that there is historical evidence that Pontius Pilate did exist, which again, you know, the Bible always proves true. The critics doubt, but the Bible comes out true. And there's another example of that. So the common people of Israel groaned under the yoke of Rome. And they longed, of course, for the grand days of Israel when there was freedom and there was justice and there was happiness. But under the current situation with Pilate, it was pretty miserable. And we also know that there was other people, particularly Herod Antipas. Now, I put this map up before showing the territory of Herod the Great. And after his death, the territory was carved up, as you can see here. So the Romans took direct control of the area of Judea and Samaria, which previously Herod the Great had. Herod Antipas took Galilee and Perea. You can see where they are. Galilee we know pretty well. That's where the Lord did a lot of his ministry, isn't it? Perea is not quite so well understood, but it's on the east side of the Jordan River and stretches down, partway down beside the Dead Sea. And that becomes quite a significant area um, in terms of the ministry of John. So Herod Antipas was there. What was Herod like? Well, he was son of Herod the Great, and he sort of followed Judaism. He claimed to be a follower of the Jewish religion, but he was a sneak, a cheat, a crook, and a sleaze. And that's praising him up. He was a very evil man. Jesus called him that fox in Luke chapter 13. Now, our Lord didn't talked down to people unnecessarily, did he? So he really meant it when he said that he was a fox. And I think that's a very apt description from what I can discover from history about him. And as we probably well know, he stole his brother Philip's wife. He killed John the Baptist. So not exactly a nice sort of chap. Well, the other person that's mentioned is Herod Philip. And there was two Herod Philips. 
So this Herod Philip that's mentioned in uh, Luke chapter 3 is not the one that uh, was originally married to Herodias, but this Herod Philip was actually a more moderate sort of bloke, and he was vaguely reasonable. Then we come to Lysanias, um, the Tetrarch, and he was of uh, Abilene, and the critics had a field day about that too, because they said, well, yes, there was a Lysanias who was the Tetrarch of Abilene, but that was in BC 36, not AD 27. So Luke got it wrong again. Well, it turns out there was a Lysanias who was Tetrarch in BC 36, but there was another one thought to be his grandson who was the Tetrarch in AD 27. And the reason we know that, that there is one is because of two inscriptions that have been found over the years in the town of Abila, which is the capital, or was the capital of Abilene. And it mentions this man, Lysanias, as being Tetrarch between AD 27 and AD 40. And you can see two examples of the inscriptions. Yet again, the Bible is proved true. We can trust it, can't we? So in the time stamping, Luke goes on to talk about Annas and Caiaphas. And they were the high priests. Now, you might immediately think, there's a problem here, and Luke's highlighting it. Uh, isn't there supposed to be one high priest? There was always to be one descendant of Aaron who was high priest, not two at the same time. So why are we being told that Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests? Well, you see, Luke is giving the hint that there's a big story behind this. Because you see, Annas basically bought the high priesthood back in AD 6. And he paid a lot of money for it. And he had to make money out of it. And so as a result of that, there was all sorts of corruptions that came about. So you can see he was high priest from AD 6 to AD 15, then his son from AD 16 to 17, and Caiaphas' son-in-law, AD 18 to 36, which is the period of John the Baptist and also of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are they both high priests? Because Annas is really the power. He is the high priest that makes the decisions. He is the one that's the head of the Sanhedrin, but Caiaphas is his puppet, who's the one that appears on the public events and in the temple to look good. Because, you see, Annas was dismissed. And why was Annas dismissed by the Romans in AD 15? For gross corruption. And the Romans were big into corruption. So if he was dismissed for being more corrupt than them, he was very, very corrupt. But he continued to be in control. And you might remember that when there was the trials of Jesus, when they arrested Jesus, who did they take him to first? Annas. He was the one first. Even though he wasn't really the high priest, it was to Annas first because Annas was the one that was going to make the decisions. The other people were just pawns in the game. So you see how this works. Now, <clears throat> even the Talmud is critical of Annas. Talmud, in, you can see the reference there, woe to the house of Annas, woe to their serpents hiss. In other words, they're the descendants of serpents. Not a very nice statement, is it? They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple and their servants beat people with staves. Not very nice at all, is it? 
And this is the environment of the priesthood that John the Baptist, because he was entitled to be priest, could be coming into. Much worse than it was even in the evil days at the time of Zacharias. And of course, this next slide is something that's very famous about the Lord coming into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and uh, cleaning out all the, those that sold um, the animals for sacrifice and also changed money. So Matthew uh, 21, 13, he said unto them, it is written, my house should be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And even in the rabbinic writings, it's called the bazaars of the sons of Annas. And you know, the high priests, well, the priests were never happy that Jesus had cleaned out the temple twice. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, didn't he? John chapter 2, he did it at the end of his ministry on the, the weekend that he was killed. And you know, they never mentioned that once in his trials, did they? And I think the reason they never mentioned it once is because they knew it was wrong. And it wouldn't stand any degree of, of external scrutiny at all, so they never mention it in his trials. And we think about it, brethren and sisters, these high and mighty men, they were corrupt. They went to all sorts of measures to have money and power. And they had their day and they're finished, aren't they? They're just people in history. There's probably nothing much left of their bones anymore. They've got no hope. We're ordinary people, as Brother Max mentioned before, but we're going to be kings and priests, just like they were kings and priests. But we're going to be kings and priests for eternity by the grace of our God. Isn't that, isn't that something? Now, let's look at the, the, the time scale of how this all happens um, in relation to particularly the ministry of John. Now, I think John's ministry as time-stamped in Luke 3, verse 1, begins about the beginning of AD 27. Now, I hold a different view on the chronology. I, I hold the view that Jesus was born in AD 0. Other people think it's somewhere between BC 6 and AD 4. There's a whole lot of different reasons. And look, I've picked one. I think it's the best answer. If, if you pick a different date, it doesn't really change things. All it just moves the, the whole thing up and down a few years. So I think John's ministry begins about there. And <clears throat> I think we can work backwards to find John where John baptizes Jesus about here. I think he baptizes Jesus around about the seventh month. That's the Jewish seventh month. And we'll talk more about that a bit later. And you'll see all the Passovers marked there. John does a marvelous job in his gospel of marking out the chronology of the Lord's ministry by Passovers. So the first Passover that the Lord is at is in uh, the one. Oh, heck, here we go again. I didn't even touch it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to hammer through it. It's all right. <laughs> okay. Sorry, we'll have to, have to fix this. Yeah. It says we're connected. So if I just minimize that. Go and do settings again. Displays. Connect to a wireless display. Click on that. Try it again.
Yep, it looks as though it's going to try to do something again. There's those little blue dots going across. Right, okay, we might be back in business. So if I can get rid of that. Uh, how am I going to get rid of this? Like that. So if I then go... Oh goodness. Why is this not doing this? back going again okay <clears throat> well at least they've given you something memorable to, to remember about the talk haven't I you know <laughs> the PowerPoint slides went off hopefully it doesn't happen again okay we're talking about John baptizing Jesus about here we talk about the uh, the Passovers we can tell that Jesus ministry is about three and a half years because of the uh, the dating of all the events and we can see that John was imprisoned just after the first Passover. So from the time he baptizes Jesus, he's got less than six months before he is in prison. And then he's in prison for about two years. So his ministry is about 3.2 years. The ministry of Christ is about three and a half years. So it gives you just a rough idea of how long John is ministering for. And he's executed um, just before Passover, uh, the third Passover listed on the screen there in AD 32. Now, one of the very other useful things to, uh, to have doing a study on John the Baptist is uh, this book from Scripture Study Service. Sorry about the advertisement. It's a harmony of the Gospels. And when you open it up, it looks a bit like this. This is mine, which is quite, a, quite old. And you can see how the records of Matthew, Mark and Luke are lined up. It also has John when John has got uh, things that fit in with that particular time frame. Uh, I find that very valuable. If you haven't got one of those, I'd definitely recommend it to you because it saves looking things up, you know, trying to keep three fingers in your Bible and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and, and working out which verses go before each other, etc. So just a little advertisement for Scripture Study Service. Very useful. Now, where did John preach and baptise? Well, he was in the wilderness of Judea, which is here. Now, you can see that there's the Dead Sea. You can see the Jordan River running down. And you can see all these roads all over the place. And I've chosen a map with roads because there's some important things to be made, uh, pointed out about that. And <clears throat> he's baptizing at a place called Bethabara, which is what John says, John 1 verse 28. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. And Bethabara is the house of the ford. And this is exactly the place where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan. John chapter, uh, Joshua chapter 2, verse 7, it's called the fords. Now you might say, 
Well, why did the water have to go flow backwards up to Adam in Joshua chapter 2 when the children of Israel crossed um, the Jordan? If it's at the fords, you can just, you know, the fords aren't very deep. You can just wade through and it's perhaps up to your knees. And that's about all they could just walk through. Well, the answer to that is that that's the way it normally is in the Jordan, except in springtime, which was when they crossed the Jordan, when it floods, because there's all the, the early rains that come and there's also the snow melting off Mount Hermon. It causes the Jordan to flood all the way down. And so the Jordan River, instead of being perhaps 20 metres wide, suddenly becomes more like about three to 400 metres wide. And instead of the ford being you know, this sort of depth of water, it's sort of way up here. So that's why it was absolutely important if Israel was going to get across, that they had to open up the, 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 the waters had to open up for them to go across. But for the rest of the year, you could go through the fords. And we'll see the significance of that a bit later because there was quite a lot of people that went through the fords. But what does it look like? Well, if you want to go on satellite view on Google Maps, this is what it looks like. They don't have Bethabara marked, but you can work out where it is. And you can see the Jordan River. That's that sort of snaky thing down the middle. And you can see that there's some vegetation just around the edges of the river. And everywhere else, guess what it's like? It's desert. Like there is nothing much that grows. There's the odd little shrub trying to eke out an existence amongst heaps and heaps of dirt. And why is it like that? Because it doesn't rain down there. It's the wilderness of Judea. So what does it look like when you're at the, the area of Bethabara? Well, this is what the Jordan River looks like now. Now, you've got to remember that most of the water is being taken out of the Jordan River these days by the time it gets down to Bethabara because of irrigation for the Jordanians on one side and also for the Israelis on the other side. You can see that the scruffy vegetation that is either side of the river. And if you go to Bethabara, the site, this is what it looks like now. They've turned it into a tourist attraction. It's a tourist attraction both sides of the river. So we're looking at this from the Jordanian side, and over the other side is Israel. And uh, I very nearly lost my wife at this particular scene because we've been in Jordan a few days and she was not enjoying Jordan. And the thought that she could just go across the river straight across to the other side and be in Israel, whew, had to hold her back to make sure she didn't do it because that's not a legal um, crossing. In fact, there's soldiers there guarding it. But this is the place, and I, I think they're right. This, you know, when you go to Israel, there's uh, all sorts of tourist attractions that you know are blatantly wrong. Uh, they make money out of them. But this one, I think, is right. One of the ones that they blatantly uh, is blatantly wrong is uh, on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, there's the, uh, the Inn of the Good Samaritan, and you can go and visit it. What's the problem with that? The Good Samaritan's a story, isn't it? There was no literal inn of the Good Samaritan. But they have one. It's built so you can go there. But it's crazy, isn't it? So this is um, the Jordan River. And it's not particularly deep there, as you would expect the fords would have been in those years gone by. Now, <clears throat> we might think, here's John out in the wilderness. And he's... You know, um, oh, good grief. Now I've made my own problems. 
bit further. Thank you. Get a bit. Where are we? Yeah, this slide. Guess what? <laughs> We're in trouble again. Let's see if I can. Uh... You get better effect with your keyboard. Yeah, I do. I do indeed. Thank you. Nice to know, Brother Greg, that you're uh, the IT help desk in these times. <laughs> right, now can I get... Yeah, that's looking better. If I do that again, we can go... So as I was saying, all around, um, thank you for that, that worked, that was good. Um, <clears throat> all around uh, the area of Bethabara is desert, right? So you think, John's out there in the desert, who else is there out in the desert? I mean, you know, it's a bit like if we did a preaching campaign um, in, I don't know, the, the Simpson Desert and said, look, um, we're out here, we'd like all sorts of people to come and hear about the gospel. Do you think there's many people going to go to the Simpson Desert? Not really. But it's not quite that bad, because although he's at the desert, there's actually some people that go past. Now, I'm trying to illustrate that with another map, which is this one here, which gives the, uh, the routes that would be taken from um, Galilee to go down to Jerusalem. You might remember that in those days, every male had to present before Yahweh in the temple three times a year. And it was Passover, it was Pentecost, and it was um, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were the three days they had to be there. So, of course, there was lots of people. If you lived in Galilee, you had to go on a trip, didn't you? Now, <clears throat> the preferred route that most people took from Galilee, apparently, was they went down the Green Line, down here. The reason they went down the Green Line was they didn't want to go down this way through Samaria because the Samaritans were a pretty horrible lot to the Jews and the Jews were a pretty horrible lot to the Samaritans, so they didn't get on. So they'd come down here, down the, the Jordan Valley, and come across here at Bethabara, up to Jericho, and then up to Jerusalem. But you couldn't do that for Passover because the river's flooded. Therefore, you can't get across. So for the other two feasts, you'd go that way, and for uh, the time of Passover, you'd go this way. And that's why it says in John 4, when Christ left from Jerusalem to go up north to Galilee, it said he must needs go through Samaria, because it's the time of Passover, you can't go through the Jordan because it's too flooded everywhere. So John is there, and he's down here at Bethany beyond Jordan, or Bethabara, and so he would be seeing these pilgrims coming this way. They'd be going quite near him. And so presumably he calls out to them and talks to them and gives them the, the gospel, the gospel of repentance for forgiveness of sins, the gospel that Jesus Christ is coming and that they need to repent. And so presumably they would hear this and then as they'd go up to Jerusalem and say, hey, you'd never guess who we met on this this." coming up to Jerusalem, going through Bethabara, we met this man, John, and he said these amazing things. And he was astonishingly successful, wasn't he? Because he got multitudes to come um, 
to, to listen to him because he became quite successful. Now, what else do we know about John? We know what his clothing was like. His clothing was of a garment of camel's hair and he had a leather girdle. So what does a garment of camel's hair look like? It's not camel's skin, but um, here's some examples of some coarse weave fabrics made of camel's hair. And I don't in modern days, you can actually buy suits made of camel's hair these days, and apparently they're very prized and they're very, very soft. And but of course, they have been well-processed uh, fibres. But in those days, about all you could get was this sort of thing, which is fairly rough, and it had lots of little bits sticking out of it. So, uh, if you had a, a, a garment made of camel's hair, it would be like wearing a hair skin. You know, the hair would be on your back, and you'd make you feel rather irritable. That, it was just not very comfortable. So that's what John is wearing, a garment made of, um, <clears throat> of camel's hair. Um, and he's got a leather girdle. Where does he get the leather from? Most likely from camels, because camels were apparently quite wild in those days. Uh, I believe we have wild camels up in uh, northern Australia still. Um, they seem to be able to live in the desert quite well as wild animals. And, of course, we know that Elijah was dressed just the same. Uh, 2 Kings 1 verse 8 talks about that he was dressed with a, uh, uh, a garment of hair and he also had a girdle around his loins. And it's also typical of other prophets in Zechariah 13 and verse 4. It mentions that. So what is that telling us about John? Well, I would suggest to you it's telling us that John is poor. He doesn't have any money for any quality clothing. I would suggest that he's actually made his garments of camel's hair. He's got the camels, got a camel, and it's either dead or he's killed it. He's uh, taken the, the, the hair off it, made it into fabric, and that's his coat. He's got the skin, and that's made, made him uh, a girdle. The point is, he's got nothing. Now, this is what is told us in Matthew chapter 3, isn't it? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. This is where we all need our um, um, Harmony of the Gospels book so that we can keep Luke 3 and Matthew 3 open. <clears throat> so it says, verse 4, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. So what do we know about locusts? His food was locusts and wild honey. Well, here's a picture of a, one of those lovely creatures called the locust, very much like a grasshopper. And you can buy them these days in Israel. You can actually go to a restaurant and have a meal of locusts. You can have them either uh, on skewers, so that you can just suck them off, um, bite them off, or you can have a pile of them on your plate. And they're a clean food. They're clean under the, the law of Moses. Um, Leviticus chapter 12, I think it is, because they leap off the ground. Um, so they are clean. And, uh, you know, wouldn't that be nice to just be crunching one in your teeth? It's uh, really quite quite nice. I don't think so. And uh, oh, I haven't got the internet connection here. Locusts are yum. You can see I've got it underlined. It's because there's a link in that. 
And if I click on that, if I was connected to the internet, it takes you to a video of the, uh, um, the factory that breeds locusts in Israel. And they produce 140,000 locusts a week. And there's this big factory and they've got grass and they're breeding the locusts and they're eating the grass. And when they get to a certain level, they kill them off and they sell them to the restaurants. So yes, if you're in Israel and you want to see what John the Baptist ate, well, you can go there and you can get a meal of locusts. Um, oh yeah, locusts are clean under the law. So <clears throat> again, what's the message out of this? John didn't pay any money for food. He was out in the wilderness and there's lots of locusts. There was in fact plagues of locusts in the Negev back in 2013. Uh, they're there all the time. They managed to deal with the, the little tiny bit of vegetation that there is in the wilderness. And we're also told that his, uh, his food was also wild honey and you can get wild honey in the desert. And what happens is that the bees um, generally make their hives in uh, clefts in the rock or crevices, and you can see some bees there in a crevice. And <clears throat> this is the honey that you can buy in Israel. Or you can even buy it uh, online. So the first one is Lynn's Farm Wildflower Honey from the Negev Desert Plains. And you can also see another one that's selling Negev honey. There's three sorts. You can get Galilee honey or Jerusalem honey or Negev honey. So out there in the wilderness, there was bees and there still is, and you can get the honey from that area. Now, of course, John didn't get his honey delivered like that in a nice little um, jar, did he? He had to actually go and get it from the bees. And of course, the bees wouldn't have been too appreciative of him taking away their honey. So that wouldn't have been a very pleasant task, would it? But that's obviously what he lived on. So you have your locust, you dip it in honey, and then put it in your mouth and ooh, swallow it down. And that's lunch. So I had hoped to actually have some locusts here for us to try for lunch today, but it's very hard to buy them in Australia. I don't know whether you've been able to secure them, but I've not been able to. So. <laughs> yes, well, I can't imagine, you know, really enjoying that, uh, that feeling of the legs going down your throat. <laughs> anyway. Getting back to uh, more sensible things. So the exhibition of John. Why are we told about John's clothing and food? Well, Luke 1, he's an exhibition. And it wasn't just that John was to be exhibited. It was that there was something about him to see. Now come over to Luke chapter 7. We've looked at Luke chapter 7 before, where the Lord calls John the greatest prophet ever. <clears throat> so in verse 24 of Luke chapter 7, this is when the messengers of John the Baptist had come to Christ to relay John's word saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? Out of verse 19. And it says, verse 24, And when the messengers of John were departed, because Christ had told them various things, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. Now, that, the people, it's a crowd scene, isn't it? There's a whole crowd of people around the Lord. The messengers from John, who are disciples of John, have come along with this question from John, art thou he that should come or look we for another? Which sounds very much like John has lost his faith. Uh, Jesus, are you sure that you're really the Messiah? And it wasn't like that at all. We'll, we'll cover that later. That it was more that 
This was the way of John getting his disciples to go to see Jesus, to see the miracles, to therefore attach themselves to Jesus, which we'll cover in the next session. So <clears throat> you can imagine the crowds there sort of having a, a, little, a little bit of a laugh, thinking, oh, you know, John's lost his, uh, lost his faith, hasn't he? The wilderness has really got to him. Prison's got to him. He's given up on his faith. So the Lord really rails against them and says, verse 24, what went she out into the wilderness for to hear? He doesn't say that, does he? For to see a reed shaken in the wind. In other words, John wasn't the sort of person that blew from one, one extreme to the other. He wasn't affected by the winds of doctrine or the winds of sentiment. Verse 25, but what went she out to see? Verse 26, but what went she out to see? And the Lord's point is that here is John who is... Not just a prophet, but he's a man, when you look at him, you can see he's not a hypocrite. He's genuine. Because if he wasn't genuine, he wouldn't be out there. Because he's entitled to be a priest. He could have been up in the temple, leading a luxurious life, power and money. But he wasn't. He was out in the wilderness beside this water. And he didn't have any money, by the way his clothes were or the food that he ate. So you knew that he wasn't trying to make money out of you because he didn't have any. So he's got no ulterior motives. He was not a hypocrite. And, you know, that's a, a lesson to us too, isn't it? We are followers of Christ. We try to keep the commandments of Christ in the way we live. And as well as to talking to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be living it, don't we? We need to be genuine people very easy to be not genuine to but people will assess us in fact many cases people have come into the truth and I know an example from uh, just in the last couple of years of a sister in Adelaide who was working in the ANZ bank uh, and a man that was there who was a co-worker eventually said look you're different from everyone else you're, you're obviously a very sincere and genuine person tell me what you believe and she hadn't spoken a word to him He's now baptized and he ended up marrying her. So, but, you know, it shows what the appearance can, can show forth. Because you see, the Jews at the time were surrounded by hypocrisy. I mean, we've talked about the priests. They put on a grand show. They were there in their white robes, beautiful fine linen. There was the best music in the world, but they were as corrupt as could be. They took the money off people blind. They... They took the animal sacrifices and took the best parts for themselves and didn't offer them as they should have. And then there's the, the, the Pharisees. And they were full of pretension. So here's a, a picture of a, a Pharisee who's praying in the street corners, trying to get the admiration of all the people around him. And what's he doing it for? Christ says, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the corners of the streets. And the Lord also said that they make a pretense at this and yet they're devouring widows' houses. And Josephus records how they were doing that too. And you know something, brethren and sisters? The pretense of the Pharisees hasn't changed. Because when you go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, there are all these people praying. And you know how they pray? They're sort of like this, they're nodding. And this is their prayer sequence. Well, we happened to be there a few years ago. And there was a man nodding like this, a younger man.
but he had his mobile phone here and he was talking to somebody else. <laughs> you know? It's a pretense. In this case, I, I think it's a show for the tourists. So the tourists think, oh, you know, these are very sincere and genuine people. And I'm sure there's many of them that are, but not all of them are. It's quite, quite sad, really. So, <clears throat> was John's preaching successful? Well, the Matthew record goes on and says that it was amazingly successful. So we go back to Matthew chapter 3. And <clears throat> straight after talking about um, what John was wearing and what he was eating, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5, then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. So almost everyone from Jerusalem, all of the territory of Judea, which is a big territory, and the region around Jordan, they all come out to see him. And we saw, we thought before, said before how we think this might have happened with a few people coming across John and then going and telling others and more people coming along. And when you think about it, what they had to do, if you're coming from Jerusalem and you're going to go down and see John, Well, yeah, it's the day of his showing. That's when he showed himself at first to people. Yeah, exactly right, Brother Greg. Sorry, I should have repeated that, that question for the sake of those on, on Zoom. Um, <clears throat> so there's all these people to go from Jerusalem down to where he's baptizing at Bethabara. is a 40-kilometer journey. And it's downhill. And it goes down 1,100 metres. That's a long way. We're struggling to have mountains in Victoria that are more than 1,100 metres. But it's a long way down. And it goes down to below the, uh, the sea level, well below the sea level, the lowest place on the earth. And it's all desert. So for them to go all the way down there, and there's nowhere to stay when you get there. It's not as though, well, you know, we've walked 40 kilometres, and that's a fair way to walk, isn't it, in one day? You wouldn't want to turn around and want to walk back and make an 80 kilometre day. I don't think that would be possible even in those days. So when you went down there, um, you know, it's not as though there's some lovely hotels and some places where you can stop and maybe an Airbnb or two. There's nothing like that. There's nobody there. There's John and there's the river crossing. So what do you do? You're going to rough it for the night. And then you're going to come back. Now, coming back is a bit of a challenge. Because you're going uphill all the way, that 40 kilometres. So, you know, it was no mean thing to go there. And what happens? And it says, verse 6, And they were baptised of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Wow. And we need to understand, brethren and sisters, that to be baptised was something that was quite unusual for the time. Because... Um, in the Talmud, it said, now, if someone who's a Gentile wants to become a Jew, there's several things they must do. But it included being circumcised and then being baptised. And the idea behind the baptism was to wash away all the filth of being a Gentile, because you're a dirty dog when you're a Gentile, according to the Jewish mind. And then once you've had, once you've had a bath, then you're perhaps suitable to become a Jew. So every Jew knew that. So baptism was reserved for the dirty Gentiles. Now just think how hard it is for John to sell that to the people. 
They've not only got to come out into the wilderness to see him, which is a pretty desolate place. They're going to listen to him and they're going to confess their sins first. Now think about that. How many people have you confessed your sins to in your life? Well, probably people that are close to you, you might. But someone like John, who's out there, and you can, you're in a line of people, and you're going to get baptised, and you're going to confess your sins to John, and everyone else can hear. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? I don't know that I'd be too keen to do that in a public environment, because after all, when you got to confess the things you've done wrong you don't look too good after that do you and they did that and then they submitted to a right that was for the dirty dog gentiles wow that tells us a lot about what john said doesn't it he convinced them that that's what they should do wow that's amazing so how did he do it well, as it says on the slide, that's the subject for the exhortation tomorrow. But we'll just look now at the, the lessons that we can take from what we've just looked at today. God didn't send his word to the political or great religious greats. He gave it to John. And God has given the truth of the gospel not to the great people of this day. How many great and mighty and noble are there among us, as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians? Not many. But it's been given to ordinary people like us. What a great privilege we have. The kings and priests of John's dark time had their power and wealth, but are dead without hope. And the saints in Christ are lowly, but we're going to become kings and priests for eternity in a much, much, much better situation. When the people saw John, his dress and his actions showed that his teaching was genuine. How important it is for our lives to reflect that we teach about God's word. John lived in a harsh wilderness, wearing simple clothes and eating very basic food. He owned nothing, no house, no lands, no money, yet he was happy and did an amazing job showing God's word to others. And the world tells us, brethren and sisters, that we need to have houses and cars and boats and entertainment and holidays and computers and phones and all those sort of material things to be happy. And guess what? We know that the world's actually wrong, don't we? Material possessions don't make for happiness. The happiness that the kingdom of God gives is actually true happiness. Thank you. Well, thank you, Brother Simon, and good morning, my dear brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sister Wendy and I bring with us the love and fraternal greetings of your brethren and sisters that meet at Mount Waverley. Well, we've been going through some of the things related to John the Baptist um, in our studies thus far. And as Brother Simon remarked, yesterday we looked at John as the exhibition as our Lord said, what went ye out to see? It wasn't just the voice of John the Baptist. It was 
the vision of the man that reflected what he stood for. You see, these poor people lived in a time of religious hypocrisy. Their leaders were hypocrites. We well know of the Pharisees who pretended and offered prayers on street corners that they might be noticed. And that was the society in which they were living in. But when they went out into that desert, down to the Jordan, where there was just desert and there was John, what did they see? They saw a genuine man, a man with no pretensions, no hidden agendas. He had no money. He had no possessions. He was genuine. And today, brethren and sisters, by way of exhortation, we're going to look at John being the voice, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Now, it's interesting, brethren and sisters, that all four Gospels record that quotation from Isaiah 40 about John. All four of them do it. And it's telling us to look back at those particular verses in Isaiah 40. But as we know, as students of the word, as being educated by Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts, one of the absolute key things in understanding scripture is contextual Bible study, isn't it? Contextual Bible study. We look at the context. We try not to take verses out of context. So come with me back to Isaiah chapter 40, but we're actually just going to skim through from Isaiah 36 onwards. So <clears throat> Isaiah 36 and 37 are chapters about how Yahweh saved Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. Now these chapters are in, in Kings and Chronicles, aren't they? And so they're reproduced in Isaiah. It must be for a reason, mustn't it? Because Isaiah is not really full of a lot of chronological information. It's prophecy, isn't it? Anyway, just tuck that away in the back of your mind. Then we come to Isaiah chapter 38, where it talks about Yahweh recovering Hezekiah from his illness. So not only has Yahweh caused Jerusalem to be saved from the Assyrians, and you remember the reference in uh, in the Kings and Chronicles record how that the angel of Yahweh went out and slew 185,000 of the Assyrians. And when they woke up in the morning, they were all dead men. So Judah has been saved from the Assyrians. And now Hezekiah is being saved from this disease that had come upon him from his illness. Then chapter 39 is about when the Babylonians come to visit Hezekiah. And it says, verse 1, And at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. He'd also heard, no doubt, that the Assyrians had come across the first place, the first place where they would lose battles and not be able to take Judah and Jerusalem. They'd taken almost everything except that little bit round Jerusalem. No doubt the Babylonians were interested in figuring out how did that manage to happen? So it says, verse 2, And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armour and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. You notice, brothers and sisters, I didn't emphasize the critical word in, those, in that verse, did I? 
because this explains the problem that Hezekiah has in this chapter. Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armour and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. What's happened to Hezekiah? He's lost his perspective, hasn't he? It's not his treasures, is it? Not his house. Yahweh had saved them for him. It was clearly of God, wasn't it? What's gone wrong with Hezekiah? Pride's got to him, hasn't it? He's starting to think that maybe all this deliverance that happened was because of him. And so he didn't ascribe the praise and honour that was due to Yahweh in front of these people. To say, look, it's not me, it's what God has done for me. And what a, wonder, what a sad thing it is that wonderful and gracious good King Hezekiah falls from what used to be his mantra all the time to give the praise to God. Verse 3, Then came Isaiah the prophet the king, unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men and from whence came they? And Hezekiah said, They had come from a far country, even from Babylon. Then said he, what have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all that is in my house they've seen. Verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Verse 6, behold, the days come that is all that is in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left. So all the possessions are going to be gone. The Babylonians are going to come and take all your possessions away that you've just showed them. But it's worse. Verse 7, and thy sons that shall issue from thee, because he didn't have children at this point, which thou shalt beget, they shall take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so it's not just the possessions that are going to be gone, it's the people that are going to be gone. In other words, everything's going to be gone. And that was bad enough for Hezekiah to learn, but just think of the people, brethren and sisters, that are living in Jerusalem. They've lived through the terrible siege of the Assyrians, I've seen the marvellous deliverance by God. Wow, we've been saved. And now they hear it's all going to be lost again. They don't know how far away it is. All they know is that it's all going to be lost. Just imagine how just decimated they would have felt. Well, where is there any hope? The wonderful days of Israel under David and Solomon are all gone. And soon we're going to be gone into Babylon. All hope is lost. And I think that's the critical context for Isaiah chapter 40. And it's got a very strong set of parallels, brothers and sisters, to the circumstances of the people of John the Baptist's time. They were under the Roman yoke. The Romans were cruel to them. They murdered many, many Jews. And then there was the religious leaders that were hypocrites, couldn't be trusted. What hope did they have? And they would be thinking, where are the grand days? The days of David and Solomon. And then, well, we know Messiah's coming. The prophecies said that he's coming. The 70 weeks prophecy. But it hasn't happened. So I think the setting is very much the same. And look what the response is. And of course, we know that this is the work of John the Baptist that's being talked about here. Because it says, here's the... The verse that's quoted four times in the New Testament, verse 3, 
the voice of him that crieth, in the wilderness prepare ye the way of Yahweh. And that's said of John. So we know it's definitely John is the voice. But what does the voice say? Well, it's right through these verses in the first 11 verses of Isaiah 40. Verse 1, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. And then the verse 2 is critical. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Have a look in your margin, if you've got an Oxford Bible. Comfortably should be, it's literally, to the heart. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was representative of not just the city, but the people of Judea. It was, if you like, the whole. It's everyone. And cry unto her that her warfare, again look at the margin, appointed time. The appointed time is accomplished that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of Yahweh's hand double for her sins. So how does that answer the problem of the previous chapter? That all's going to be taken away. Well, because what God is doing is through the prophet, he's telling the people, lift your minds out of the issue that you think is the issue. That is, that you're going to lose everything again and you're going to go off into captivity. What's the core problem? The core problem is sin. And that's why there is enemies. And that's why Yahweh sends his people into, into captivity because they have sinned and turned away from him, worshipped idols. So the core problem is going to be dealt with. Her iniquity is pardoned. And we know that the core problem is being dealt with for us in what we remember in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Who was much greater than John, but nevertheless, John paved the way for him, didn't he? And so, that's, <clears throat> that's dealing with the absolute core problem, isn't it? That God is going to solve the problem of sin. And of course, without our Lord Jesus Christ, we have no hope, don't we? But he loved us and gave himself for us that we might be justified by faith in him and how grateful we can be. Now, concerning this voice of John in verse 3, um, you might notice that I read it slightly differently. The voice of him that crieth, comma, in the wilderness prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Now, that's what the commentators say it should be. It's not saying the voice crying in the wilderness there's a voice coming out of the wilderness, prepare the way of God. No, it's saying that the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, go to the wilderness to prepare the way of Yahweh. Now, we know that that's the correct uh, understanding of it, brethren and sisters, because there's a parallelism in this verse, which you can see. Because straight after that, it says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So that's parallel, isn't it? So the wilderness is parallel with the desert. And the way of Yahweh is parallel with the highway for our God. So there it's got to be that the comma is where, where we've said it is and the commentators say it is. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness prepare ye the way of Yahweh. So he's telling the people, John is fulfilling this prophecy and telling the people that they need to prepare themselves for the coming of Messiah. 
and they've got to go to the wilderness. And where was John? He was in the wilderness. So there's no hypocrisy in John's words. He wasn't saying, look, you've got to go to the wilderness to get away from all this stuff so that you can focus on God. But I haven't been doing it. No. We've, when we look at the chronology of John's life, he'd been in the wilderness for perhaps 10 or 12 years, living in the wilderness. He was doing it. He wasn't asking of them anything more than he would do himself. So he was telling people to come to be ready to be ready to meet Jesus Christ, their Lord. If we come over to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 3 and verse 2, and what does he say? Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or rather it should read, the royal majesty of heaven is at hand, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they had to be prepared to, to uh, meet Messiah, and they were to go into the wilderness. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, brethren and sisters. It's a bit of a blunt question, but I'm really asking it myself as well. How are you going in your preparation to meet Jesus Christ, our Lord? How are you traveling in doing that? You know, we meet on a Sunday, just like today, and we have emblems. And when we partake of the emblems, we examine ourselves, don't we? And that's good. But it's a fairly brief period, isn't it, when we examine ourselves here together. And it's quite easy to be distracted and to not really focus entirely on examining ourselves. You know, I think that we need to think about perhaps finding other times in our life, and you probably do this, of quietude to do the examining of ourselves on our own. It's a good thing to think about how are we going compared to the life of our Lord. Are we really like him? Are we really ready to meet him? And this is the sort of thing that I think that the, the man John the Baptist did to get all those multitudes to come to listen to him. Because in Matthew chapter 3, and verse 5, you know, it's amazing to think of what happened. Verse 5, then went out to him Jerusalem. That's a city. A whole city of people came. And all Judea and all around the, about the region of Jordan. And were baptized of him confessing their sins. There's no doubt that he was an amazing prophet. To get people to come out into the wilderness where there's nothing. And they had to go where it was inconvenient to be. You know, there was no shops to buy some food. It was a long walk. It was dreadfully dry and dusty. And coming back, it was uphill, terribly uphill, 1,100 metre climb. And they did that because they saw and they listened to him and they responded. So it worked, didn't it, brethren and sisters? And of course, it's going to work, isn't it? Because it's prophesied in Isaiah 40 it's going to work. We know that what God says happens, but it was remarkable how it happened. So why did John tell them and why did the scriptures in Isaiah 40 say that they needed to go into the wilderness? Why into the wilderness? Well, brethren and sisters, there's no distractions out in the wilderness beside the Jordan. 
Those people in those days were used to distractions. They had them all the time. You think about in Jerusalem, where many of them lived. Well, out in the wilderness, there's no clothing shops. There's no cafes. There's no grand buildings like the temple to look at. There's no noises to distract. There's no Pharisees praying on street corners. No shopkeepers hailing passers-by, as they still do in the streets of Jerusalem. No smells of delicious food in the cafes. There's no distractions. People could concentrate on the message. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then they'd listen to John, who spoke to their hearts. He spoke tenderly. You know, when it says he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, as we discussed yesterday, there's really two Elijahs. There's Elijah before Mount Horeb, who was a gruff, laconic, independent man. And then after Mount Horeb, when God spoke to him, he's a different man. He's a man that deals with the schools of the prophets, talks to people, engages with people. And that's the sort of man that John is, isn't it? Spoke tenderly to their hearts. And they listened and they repented. You know, brethren and sisters, taking people out into the wilderness is what God has done before, hasn't he? When he took Israel out of Egypt, he could have taken them on the seacoast route into the land, couldn't he? It would have been much shorter. It would have been much more fertile, but he didn't. He took them out into the wilderness. Why? So that he could get to talk to them. And there was some response, but not enough response. They didn't develop enough faith. And as we looked at in our previous study, God is going to do that again. Because in Hosea chapter 2, when it's talking about the second exodus, when God is going to bring all of Israel through the work of Elijah to bring them back into the land of Israel. Verse 14 of Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. And if you look in the margin again, speak to her heart. Because in the wilderness, God has their attention. There's no distractions. And you can imagine where I'm going to here, brethren and sisters. I really think in the, in the age in which we live, we need wilderness time. I don't think it's realistic to think that we can go and live in the wilderness because we've got a responsibility to preach to the people around us, don't we? But we need wilderness time too because life is so busy, isn't it? with work or school or children or things, cars and houses. And in many places, we can't actually hear God. Very hard to hear God in the shopping centres, isn't it? Or in train stations or in airports. And worse than that, even when we do have some spare time, there's this wonderful stuff called technology, isn't it? We've all got them. And it, I love technology. I'm, I'm not against technology. But it can so take over our time. You know, when the phone gives a little beep to say you've got a notification, whether it's an email or a text or a WhatsApp or Facebook or et cetera, et cetera. What do we do? We reach for our phone and look at it. Immediately we're distracted, aren't we? And it's nobody's fault. Nobody's fault that we're in this situation, is it? 
But what it does is it steals our time again and again and again. And what's it stealing our time from? Having time with God, with the word. That's, I think, one of the greatest problems that we are facing as an ecclesial world. And across the ecclesias, my assessment is that Bible familiarity is declining and faith is becoming more shallow. Now, you might think I'm a bit harsh, and perhaps I am. But nevertheless, I think there's a distinct trend there. And why is that the case? Because of all these distractions. And what we need to do, brethren and sisters, and I'm telling myself this too, is we need to make sure we get quiet time to listen to the word of God speaking to us. We don't need to go to a physical wilderness to do that, but we need to get time to do it. Where God can speak to our hearts and get our attention. You know, the daily Bible readings is good. It's a good start, but it's not really sufficient, is it? Because we need time with our own Bible. And you now there's some ecclesias in North America that are trying to deal with this issue. And I think they have latched onto something that's a good idea. Quite a few ecclesias now run what's called kaio time, K-A-I-O. That's the Greek word that is used in Luke for burning, where it says in Luke 24, verse 32, where the two on the road to Emmaus after the Lord left them said, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us by the way? When our hearts burned within us, and that's the fire of the things of God in us, in, in, in us that we need, isn't it? And so what these ecclesias are doing is they're setting up either evenings, which they're calling kayo time, or camps away. And what do they do on a kayo evening? Brethren and sisters get together and they do a personal Bible study. They're not talking to each other, but they're there and they bring with them whatever they need for their personal Bible study. And if it's an evening, they might spend an hour, an hour and a half doing personal Bible study, and then they get together for supper. If it's a, a camp, uh, then they get together for a camp, maybe two or three days on a weekend. And again, the focus is personal Bible study, personal Bible study sessions, and then some other sessions. And in fact, there is a website called campkayo.com that explains all this and tells you how to run a weekend like that. And I really think, brethren and sisters, that this is one of the critical things that we need to somehow address is giving ourselves time time with the word of God. Now, you might be doing that superbly, and if you are, that's just wonderful, but I know that I, in my life, struggle to find that level of time. Now, what was it that John the Baptist told the people? Well, in Isaiah 40, we find that they have the voice in verse 3, the voice crying in the wilderness, and then in verse 6, again, it says, the voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? And the message is, all flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is the flower of the field. The glass, grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the spirit of Yahweh bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. So that's what John said to the people. And you might think, okay, yeah, interesting. But you see, brethren and sisters, it had a graphic reference for them out in the wilderness. Because out in the wilderness of Judea, it's desolate. There's nothing that grows, basically. The odd little 
shrub that's just struggling to exist and is looking half dead. And that's what you'll see. The ground is just yellow sand, but it changes. In springtime, around about May, for about three weeks, there's some rain. And guess what? You can see the grass suddenly coming up. And flowers start to come up, little wildflowers. I've been there and seen it. I guess perhaps other brethren and sisters that have been to Israel at the right time have seen it too. I can remember being on a bus with Uncle Purse Mansfield and going past the wilderness of Judea and it was raining, but it was very dry out there. And when we came back two weeks later from Mount Sinai, all of a sudden it's green. You can see all this green all over it. And the little flowers are coming up, red ones and yellow ones and all sorts of pretty, and it looks amazing. And then it all changes because there's a wind that comes along. It's called the hot Kamsin wind that comes from the south, from Arabia. And it comes in June, early June, where this has been growing for maybe three weeks, four weeks. A hot wind comes along and it's all dead. A couple of days, it's all gone. All the grass is browned off. All the flowers are dead. And that's the way it stays for the rest of the year. And so that illustration where John is saying all flesh is grass would hit home to them, wouldn't it? Because they'd be familiar with it. And it's a very real reality for our lives, isn't it, brethren and sisters? How long are we really on this, this earth for? Well, I turned 69 this year. And I can remember when I was a teenager and life seemed to stretch out forever in front of you. You think 70 something years you might live, you know, that's almost an eternity away. Well, for those of us who are older, we realize that that's not an eternity at all. Actually, those years go incredibly quickly. And then we're going to be dead, just like that grass. We're going to be gone. And what matters then? Will it matter what we've earned in life? Will it matter what house we've lived in, what car we've driven? All that won't matter at all, will it? Only thing that will matter is the relationship we have with our God and with our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, you know that too, don't you? That's the only thing that will endure because we want to be in that kingdom, don't we? And you know, when we look around the world about us, the world wants to avoid talking about death. It wants to sort of somehow make it clinical and clean and you can put it into a little compartment and not have to worry about it. And that's one of the great advantages of wilderness time, I would suggest, brethren and sisters, when we think carefully about ourselves and our relationship with our God, it's inescapable that we realise that we are but like the grass that comes and then disappears and that we need our God and we need our Lord and that life is very fleeting. And that what we need to do is fix our hopes on God alone. Well, <clears throat> we also find how John spoke to the people. If we come over to Luke chapter 3, with us in mind that this is the sort of thing he's telling the people. That all flesh is grass. And he's obviously not doing it in an aggressive way. He's speaking to their hearts to say, come to grips with yourself. That's what we really are. We've got to do something about it. And I think that explains why so many of them confess their sins publicly. I mean, 
You're standing in a queue of people about to get baptised and John says, now what sins have you got to, to confess? And you have to say something, don't you? And you've got to be honest if your baptism is going to be worth anything. And you're going to say it in front of all these people. Wow. Were they touched? Were their hearts touched? Wow. Very touched. don't know about you, but it's rather hard to confess your sins to other people, isn't it? Well, in Luke chapter 3, we have four classes of people that come to be baptised of John. Now, the first lot is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know that from what it says in Matthew 3. So in verse 7, he says to the Pharisees and to the, and to the Sadducees, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Wow. Was John direct? He was very direct, wasn't he? So not only could he speak to people's hearts, he knew what was in people's hearts. And he knew that the best thing he could do for the Pharisees and Sadducees was to confront it. I mean, he could have just taken the soft option and said, look, I don't think you're really ready for this. But he goes right to the core of their problem, which is actually loving, isn't it? Because it gave them a chance. If you don't help people with the core of their problem, then it's not really helping, is it? And sometimes bluntness is needed, isn't it? So that's what we find that John did to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. And in Isaiah 40, there was four categories of things that had to be straightened out. It says in verse 4 of Isaiah 40, Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And those four things line up with the four classes of people that John dealt with. So in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the mountains. They thought they were right up here. And John brought them right down to this level. You're no better than anybody else, is what he's telling them, isn't it? And then what does he say to the common people? Verse 10, the, pe the people asked him, what shall we do then? And verse 11, he answered them and said, he that hath two coats, let him depart to him, impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, likewise, let him do likewise. Now think about what he's saying to these people. He that has two coats, meaning not everyone has two coats. That means a lot of people have one coat. I don't know whether you've looked in your wardrobe recently, but I have to confess that my wardrobe has more than one coat in it. And I suspect that yours does too. So what do we learn by the fact that a lot of these people only had one coat? They were pretty poor, weren't they? They had nothing much. Because they lived in a society where the Romans milked them with taxes, and then the rotten Pharisees and Sadducees milked them for money through the temple when they were trying to do something for God. They were milked everywhere. Many of them had nothing and think how they felt in society. They were right down here, weren't they? They had nothing, felt they had no hope, lost. And John lifts them up. He lifts them up to the same level. He's going to put everybody on the same level. 
And then it says the publicans came to him to be baptised. Now these are the tax collectors. They were hated, weren't they? Hated by the, the Jews because, well, the Romans had this farming system for taxation. So the emperor in Rome decided how much money he needed to run the empire and he divided it up to what he needed to collect from all the territories. So each territory had to bring in a certain amount. And then in each territory, the, the, the tetrarch would say, well, I need someone who's going to bid to collect all this for me. And when an organisation got together and put the right bid in to collect the amount, and of course they always wanted to get a bit extra because they didn't want to hand it all over to, to Rome. They wanted to live in opulence too, so they'd already put the price up of what had to be collected. So then these organisations would say, OK, we'll do it and we'll engage tax collectors on the ground. And of course, the organisation wanted to make money as well. And then the tax collectors, they wanted to make money. So before you know where you are, if Rome wanted $1, what the people had to pay was about $10. And it was extortion, wasn't it? Absolutely horrible extortion. And the tax collectors were hated by the, the people because they knew that they were being extorted by these people. But John had touched their hearts. And John says to them, exact no more than that which is appointed you. In other words, stop creaming it off the top so that you can have everything that you want. Just collect what you're supposed to collect. Very direct statement, wasn't it? But it obviously touched their hearts, the fact that they'd even come there. And then what does he say in verse 14 to the soldiers? Now, that you know, the tax collectors were were the crooked ground, or the crooked people in, uh, in Isaiah 40. And then the soldiers are the rough places that are going to be made plain. And verse 14, the soldiers likewise demanded of him, what shall we do? What are the soldiers doing there? When we look at the geography, we realise why the soldiers are there. Because where is John? He's baptising at Bethabara, which is on the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea. Now that is on the border between Perea and Judea. Perea was the territory of Herod Antipas and Judea was the territory of Pontius Pilate, wasn't it? And they had soldiers that guarded that border. And so there would be Jewish soldiers who would be employed by Herod Antipas to protect that border. And they're right near where John is because they're patrolling the border on the Jordan and John's baptising on the Jordan. So they'd be there to see him. So what does he say to them? He says, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely. And he hit exactly what their problem was. He said, be content with your wages. What was their problem? Well, you only got to read in Josephus the sort of things they did. Do violence to no man. For the poor people, they treated them terribly because they knew the poor people had no voice and no protection. So if poor people got in the way, they just thumped them. If poor people said something against the soldiers, they beat them up. It's tough. But for the richer people, they had a different tactic. What they did is they would say, look, um, we've heard bad things about you and your property, um, that you're saying things against Herod Antipas. So, you know, it's really our responsibility to tell Herod that you're not, not saying the right things about him. 
I still made up. And what can they do? And they say, and then they say, well, you know, if you give us a little bit of money, we can perhaps just not reveal this information. So they would milk the rich by pretending that there's going to be something that they're going to report to Herod Antipas to get them into trouble. Because they knew every, every organisation, every wealthy family knew that you fell out with Herod Antipas, you're finished. Absolutely finished. So John tells them, don't do any of that. Just be content with your wages. And so the rough places are being made plain. In fact, everyone's being brought onto the same level, aren't they? The mountains are brought down. The people are brought up. The rough and the crooked are all put on the same plane. And you know, brethren and sisters, that's one of the wonderful things about the truth for us, isn't it? We're all on the same level. It doesn't matter whether we've got huge possessions or none. It doesn't matter whether we uh, have got a great reputation or not. We're all on the same level, aren't we? And the Lord Jesus Christ emphasised that because he said, you call me master and Lord and you do well, but ye are brethren. Ye are brethren. That's one of the wonderful things about, about the truth. Galatians 3 verse 28, ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There's, there's no distinctions. They're on the same level. And I think that's a very important thing that we need to keep in Christadelphia. You know, you look at the churches, it doesn't work like that, does it? Oh, no. There's ordinary people, but then there's the priests or the pastors. And then above that's the bishops. And, you know, the bishops strut around with a, with a hooked um, uh, stick, like you'd use for pulling a, a sheep out of a, a pit. It's supposed to be a symbol of shepherding, isn't it? And you'd think, oh, that's, that, that shows that what they're really about is that they're caring for the sheep. Well, if you look up what the churches say, what that crook means, that shepherd's crook, doesn't mean that at all to them. It's a symbol of their authority over others and what others must do for them. Have a look. Google it. It's amazing. Are people on the same level? No way. There's a hierarchy and there's more important people than other, other people, but we're not. We're all one in Christ Jesus, aren't we? Well, brethren and sisters, <clears throat> Luke finishes his quote on Isaiah 30, 40 on the coming of Christ in Luke 3 and verse 6. He says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And Isaiah 40 is full of the salvation of God. But you see, what it does, as so much of scripture, is it reaches forward. So initially what it's talking about is the salvation coming in the sacrifice of Christ. But then it reaches beyond that to the return of Christ and to the kingdom. So, for example, <clears throat> Isaiah 40 and verse 9. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Here is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? But it sweeps on because behold your God is behold your Elohim, mighty ones, not singular. 
Who are the Elohim? Well, it's going to be the saints in the kingdom, isn't it? And so it reaches on in, uh, in verse 10. Behold, the Lord Yahweh will come with a strong, harm, strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Who's his arm? The arm is the Lord Jesus Christ. Also in, in prophecy in, in uh, Isaiah. And shall rule for him. Did, did the Lord rule at the time of his first advent? He didn't. So this is sweeping through the second advent. Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. Of course, we're waiting, brethren and sisters, for the second advent of the Lord, aren't we? And by the signs and the times in the world around us, with Russia and Ukraine, with China getting aggressive, with food shortages around the world, with inflation taking off, the world's in trouble, isn't it? And we know that it's heading towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come now to the emblems, brethren and sisters, we realise that we're looking two ways with our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking back to his sacrifice that we might have our sins forgiven, but we're also looking forward, aren't we, to his return. And as we begin to examine ourselves, brethren and sisters, I think when we're very honest, we say, well, we're never going to match the life of our Lord Jesus Christ or that of John, are we? Our Lord gave absolutely everything, and so did John. Our Lord had no money, no possessions. In fact, he said, didn't he? He had nowhere to lay his head. He had no home. And John didn't either. And yet, I don't think we are being called to do that level of commitment because it's not practical in terms of raising families to do that. But we need to be trying to be like our Lord and like John, don't we? And we'll never be worthy in our own right to have a place in the kingdom. But you know, brethren and sisters, we can want with all our heart to be in the kingdom with our Lord Jesus Christ, can't we? And we know that our Lord was ever merciful and compassionate. And if we're really trying to follow him, if we're tr really trying to find acceptance and not rejection, then we will find that at his hand when he returns. May our God bless our remembrance of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and of John the Baptist, who is his forerunner. continue our studies on John the Baptist and as you, you will recall that in our exhort we looked at the amazing effect of John's preaching by the Jordan in the wilderness and how the multitudes braved going into those desolate places to listen to the voice and what a voice that was. He spoke to their hearts and managed to get them to repent on a scale that no other prophet had ever achieved in Israel's history. Now, there's just a couple of things that uh, uh, I thought I would uh, talk about flowing on from the exhortation this morning. Firstly, that is <clears throat> in relation to the green grass in the wilderness. All flesh is as grass. So here's what the wilderness looks like. It's the wilderness of Judea. It's sort of rolling hills of 
um, desert and you know spot the green grass. There isn't any. Um, and yet when springtime comes, it suddenly changes and it looks like that. And I've seen it. It's amazing. There's this grass clothes all of those hills. It's just phenomenal. And on those hills and in the valleys, there is flowers popping up. And beautiful little wildflowers. You can see these little red wildflowers here. And as I put on the slide, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is the flower of the field. The grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the spirit of Yahweh bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. That's what we are, aren't we? We appear for a little while, we're like a vapour, and then we disappear. And it's an important levelling concept in our heads, isn't it, to realise that we're not permanent, we're very transient creatures. Now, are we talking about the wilderness? This morning we're talking about getting out into the wilderness, as in a spiritual wilderness, so that we can get our heads in our Bibles and build our relationship better with our God and our Lord. I omitted to mention that there is a wonderful camp for young people run in South Australia, and Brother Con and Sister Sue uh, happen to be here, and they're wonderful ambassadors for this camp, which is called Wilderness Camp. And the idea behind the camp is to get away and to be in the spiritual wilderness with other young people. So I think, and uh, <clears throat> Sister Wendy and I were blessed to be able to visit that camp this year um, and do a couple of talks. And it was lovely to be with a, a bunch of young people that were really enthusiastic for the things of God. So I'll give that a bit of a promotion. And again, if you want to know more about it, Brother Con is right here. Okay, our subject is, <clears throat> Then cometh Jesus unto John to be baptised. Now this is the pinnacle, the climax of the work of John, isn't it? His role was to bring people to Jesus Christ, to be the forerunner, and once Jesus is baptised, his job is done. So this is very critical for him, the focal point of his ministry. So where are we on the timeline? Well, we're here. And it should circle it. John baptises Jesus. And I believe that's about AD 29. And it's in the seventh month. The reason we know that is because it's six months after this that is the Passover when John is imprisoned and if you go back six months from Passover you're in the seventh month where there is the Feast of Trumpets the Day of Atonement and then um, Sukkot which is the uh, the Feast of Tabernacles sorry I'm using the Hebrew term if you go back exactly six months it's closest to the Day of Atonement and my personal belief is the Lord was baptised on the Day of Atonement. And I'll explain why a little bit later. So, <clears throat> um, now we've got to imagine in our mind's eye too that John's ministry has been going for you know, nearly three years, two and a half years, 2.7 years to be exact. And in that time, John has gone from being somebody who nobody knew just a lonely person out in the wilderness preparing for his job, to now a celebrity of unmatched reputation. Unmatched reputation. Everyone knew about John. By this stage, tens of thousands of people have come down and listened to him and got baptised. And the authorities are starting to get worried about it. 
So John is a success. He's done what he's supposed to do and he's a celebrity. And it's important to bear that in mind because of what happens here. Now, where is he? He baptizes Jesus at Bethabara, which is uh, the point marked on the map. And then after that, Jesus will go to the wilderness of Judea for his temptation and then return. So in Matthew uh, 3, which our brother Caleb kindly read for us, it says, verse 13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan under John to be baptized of him. Why does he have to come all the way down to the Jordan from Nazareth? It's a long way. Mark says he, was, he left from Nazareth to come down to Jordan. You know, why not get baptised in the River Kishon, which is in the Jezreel Valley, not that far from where Nazareth is? Um, it's a nicer river. It doesn't look particularly nice here. I couldn't find a really good shot of the Kishon. In many places, it looks really lovely. But you see, that's not the point, is it? He had to get baptised in the Jordan for a good reason. And he had to get baptised at Bethabara for a good reason. Several reasons. It all came together because at Bethabara, that's the place of the fords, that's where Joshua took over from Moses. It's where Elisha took over from Elijah. It's where Israel is going to cross under Christ and come into the land. And it's an amazingly significant place. But it's got more significance than that, as I'm sure many of you know, when you look at the Jordan, it's a parable of life, isn't it? And this map here sort of illustrates the, uh, the hills and the valleys that there is in the land. And if you run your eye up the top, there's Mount Hermon, which is where the Jordan really starts. The snows on Hermon. It's sort of symbolic of the beginning of life. And then the waters run down into the Sea of Galilee, which is teeming with life. There's so many fish there. It's all about fertility, which is the... You know what the middle of life is typically like, isn't it? And then it winds its way slowly down to the Dead Sea at the lowest point on the earth and it represents death because in the Dead Sea nothing lives. It's totally dead. And for those of us that have been there, yes, it's nice to float in the Dead Sea and you can't really swim in it because you just pop up like a cork on the top. But you're very conscious that the water, nothing can possibly live in it. It is that salty. It's a representation of death. So it is a parable, and even the Jordan's name tells us it's a parable. It's called the Descender, because it goes from birth to death. So Jesus chooses to get baptised here at Bethabara in the Jordan, just above the Dead Sea. Why is he doing this? Because he's identifying with mankind. Because our nature is heading to death, no matter what age we are. As soon as we're born, we're heading to death. You know, that's a bit of a tough statement, isn't it? When you look at, you know, newborn babies and think how wonderful they are, but still they're heading to death like all of us are. And in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, the apostle writes and says, concerning our Lord, he also himself likewise took part of the same, the same nature that we have, because he could identify with us and represent us. So it was absolutely imperative for many reasons that he get baptised at Bethabara. Now it's interesting to think about our Lord identifying with us with fallen human nature. We are people that have sinned. He never sinned. We are people that have done wrong and fallen short of God's glory. He never fell short of God's glory. He never sinned, did he? 
What lesson can we draw out of that? Well, Jesus was identifying with us in fallen mankind heading towards death. And there's the Hebrews quote. You know, do we identify with our brethren and sisters who've fallen into sin? And what I'm meaning by that is perhaps those that have been disgraced in our community. And I don't want to name names, but you know who I'm talking about because of what they've done. It's very easy to give them pariah status where nobody actually goes and talks to them, nobody sees them, nobody's interested in them anymore. They're so much in disgrace for what they've done. But that's not right, is it? The Lord didn't do that with us. He didn't say, well, you sinned, so you're pariah, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. The Lord identified with us. And I think it's an important lesson for us to reach out to those who have missed the mark in a big way, perhaps more than we have, and to try to be friends to them at least. We mightn't agree with what they've done, but let's at least be welcoming to them because after all, the Lord said, all manner of sin can be forgiven. All manner of sin. He didn't say any exception except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, did he? I think it's an important thing to try to bring people back in, even those that have really disgraced themselves big time. Well, in Matthew 3 and verse 14, we have this statement where the Lord comes to to John to be baptised. And it says, John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me? What raises the question, isn't it? How come, or does John know Jesus? And if he does, I mean, why doesn't he understand why, why Jesus is doing what he's doing? Um, in John 1 verse 31, it says, And I knew him not. So how did John not know him? How could he possibly not know Jesus? After all, their mothers were cousins. Surely they would meet each other at the feasts. And I would suggest to you, the way I've sort of figured it out, is that John knew his knew Jesus as a second cousin and a righteous man, but not as Messiah. Why might that be the case? Why didn't he know him as the Messiah? Well, I've got a suggestion that, as we know, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce the birth of these, these boys. And you'd think that that information would go like wildfire through all of Israel. Everyone would know about these two boys that were being born. But I suggest to you, brethren and sisters, that after Herod tried to kill all the babies at Bethlehem, that the family said, whoa, this is scary stuff. As soon as this is known, these two boys can be targets for, what, for whatever the authorities want to do. And there was plenty of evil men around after Herod the Great, wasn't there, as we looked at in a prior study. Herod Antipas, if there was any threat against him, he'd kill people. So I suggest that what they did is they agreed to keep it quiet as they could. Yes, some of the information had gotten out when they'd been born, but let's not talk about it anymore so that hopefully it'll disappear out of people's consciousness, which it appears to have done. Now, if you've got a different uh, theory on how this works, I'd be very interested to hear it as to why Jesus, why John didn't really know who Jesus was. He just knew him as a person. And then in verse 15, Jesus answers, sorry, John says to Jesus, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me? So he knows he's a righteous man, doesn't he, to, to make that statement. 
And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So, a very big statement of the Lord, isn't it? As we've said, he identifies with our nature by being baptised in the descender. It becometh us, you and me, John, to fulfil all righteousness. In other words, and what is all righteousness? It's God's righteousness. And what is God's righteousness about this? Well, it's to declare that all flesh is grass, even the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though it didn't sin, it was still rightly related to death. And you know something? We are the only people in the world that understand that, brethren and sisters. You look at all of the denominations. I have not been able to find another one that has the right understanding of the atonement like we have. And they come unstuck because when they come to this section here to fulfill all righteousness, why is it fulfilling all righteousness that Jesus has to die? He's dying as our substitute. That's an entirely different concept. And so all the church commentators, they can't understand it because it doesn't fit a substitutionary atonement. So it's one of those critical passages to show to people that the substitutionary atonement of the churches doesn't work. Because what was the point of Christ's baptism? Well, it was a public declaration that God is righteous to condemn human nature to death, even in a sinless man. Secondly, it was Jesus' commitment to laying down his life for the redemption of his brethren. He was identifying with us in that water that was symbolic of man's descent from life to death. And it's also an acknowledgement that Jesus needed redemption from death too. Because after all, he was mortal, he had the same nature as we have, and he needed redemption as well. He didn't need atonement for his nature, but he did need redemption from death, and that's a big difference. So, I think there's an interesting lesson about this. Um, we're very blessed to know the truth about the atonement, aren't we? Because the atonement along with God manifestation, are the two most vital doctrines. Everything else comes out of that, out of those two doctrines. And we are blessed, again, to be the only community that really understand the atonement and God manifestation. And yet everything comes out of that. And we know it. We are so blessed. However, when you look through the history of the Christadelphian movement, you will see that there has been an atonement controversy in every generation since the time of Brother Roberts. Every generation. Brother Roberts had to deal with Edward, Edward Turney and his theories in 1872, 1873, thanks Brother Greg, which was called the Renunciationist Heresy because he renounced this very idea. He renounced the idea that, that the Lord had a nature that was defiled like ours. And he wanted to go back to a quasi-substitutionary atonement. And then there's J.J. Andrews in 1894. Um, then you've got Clean Flesh in the UK and the US in 1920s, something like that. And so it rolls on. And theistic evolution, which we've had as an issue just in the last five, seven or eight years, the issue with theistic evolution is squarely the atonement. Because... The theistic evolutionists have to argue that there was no change, that death was in the world before sin came. 
Therefore, death is not the consequences of sin. Therefore, God is the one that actually placed the propensity to sin in mankind. Therefore, the problem with sin is not ours, it's God's. You know what a horrible doctrine that is. Why does God allow these controversies to happen? And I'll tell you why I think that's the case. Because it is such a vital doctrine, it's important for every generation to know it, to believe it, and to live it. And when you've got a controversy and you've got brethren on one side that you've known and loved for years, and you've got brethren on the other side that you've known and loved for years, and they're saying opposite things, you can't just say, well, I'm going to follow this brother, or I'm going to follow this brother here, because I'm going to have to work it out for myself, aren't I? Because there's two different schools of thought. I've got to work out what's right. And that is the exercise that I think our God wants us to do, is to have the atonement squarely in our minds all the time, that it might guide our lives. Anyway, let's have a look at the, uh, the baptism of, the, of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to imagine this situation. Jesus is standing in the water and John is beside him. And they're standing in this water of the Jordan River. And it's not a particularly flash river. And it, they're there six months before Passover. So that means it's when it's driest. And they're standing there and they're about to get baptised. And the location is not lost on them for sure. Because they know, they know the significance of this place. Now Jesus is 30 years of age, we're told. And what's he thinking? I'm 30 years of age. When Joseph was 30, he was elevated to be the second in command of Egypt. When David was 30, he became king. Jesus, the king of the Jews, is 30 when he gets baptised. And is he going to be a king? He's going to be the sin bearer of, the, of mankind, isn't he? And what's he committing to? Three and a half years of very hard ministry and then a horrible death. Nothing like the 30 years when David became king after 30 years. Now, that's a big commitment, isn't it, to take on? Yes, he knows that beyond that, he will have life eternal if he can carry through this ministry in a sinless way. It's still a big responsibility to sit on his shoulders. Now, let's think about John. John has been baptising thousands of people. He's a celebrity, as I've said. Everyone knows him. And he's 30 and a half. He could have started his ministry as a priest when he was 30. He could have been having a successful career in the temple. And in those days, because of the corruption that was there, he would be a wealthy man. He would be eating the best food, the parts of the offerings that he's not supposed to have, but all the priests did it, so I guess they all went along with it. And also the, the prestige of being a priest, working in the temple. And what's John going to do now? His job is finished. He finishes his career in the wilderness, in poverty. Those two made enormous decisions, didn't they? Enormous decisions. John could have said, look, I don't want to baptise you, Jesus, because this is going to be the end of my baptising work because you're going to take over. But he doesn't. He delights in the fact that he's going to do this. You know, again, there's some lessons that flow out of this. Who are they doing this for? 
for us who have no power to save ourselves. How grateful we can be, brethren and sisters. And you know, we rightly focus on our Lord's love for us in committing to the way of the cross. But we've got to remember, John gave himself to prepare the way that Christ might save us from our sins. And I think perhaps we've got to extend a debt of gratitude to John for his work too. Because his work enabled the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see particularly in this study today. Now it says in Matthew chapter 13, um, verse 16, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Now, when we piece it all together uh, from the other gospel accounts, we also learn from Luke that he prays. So the sequence of things, Luke 3.21, says that when he was baptized, he was praying. Well, we can imagine that the Lord would be praying for strength to go through it all, wouldn't he? This is the beginning of a huge commitment. There's no turning back. There's no taking of a holiday halfway through the ministry, is there? From here on, it is flat out all the way to the crucifixion. And the heavens are rent. Mark chapter 1 verse 10 says that. So we haven't got time to explore this, but you'll, I'll just read you Mark chapter 1 and verse 10. And straightway coming out of the water... He saw the heavens opened, it says in the KJV, but it's got in the margin, rent. So the heavens are rent open. Wow, that'd be dramatic, wouldn't it? And what's that about? Well, that's fulfilling Isaiah 64. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, is what Isaiah 64 verse 1 says, where Isaiah is appealing that God would come down and solve the problems. And this is it. God is going to do it through his son. He is going to come down. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon our Lord as a dove. And then there is a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, why is there the dove here? Why represent the Holy Spirit with a dove? Now, we know the Holy Spirit comes down on the Lord. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit without measure. But why is a dove? Well, in Matthew 10, it talks about being wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. So it suggests to you that it's saying that the spirit that came upon the Lord was a spirit of positiveness, of harmlessness. And when we look at all the miracles that the Lord did, they were all positive except one when he cursed the fig tree on the last few days of his life. All the other miracles positive and many many of the miracles came about because the Lord showed kindness and compassion how many were people were healed by the Holy Spirit power through the Lord because he had compassion on the people because he felt for them because he showed kindness and it's a reminder I think brethren and sisters that our Lord is not a hard master the Gospels often record that he had compassion on the people. And when we think about our Lord in heaven, he's now exalted, isn't he, to the right hand of the Father. He's got all power and authority. God has given him that. It says that in Matthew 28, doesn't it? What's he like? Is he a hard, cruel man now because he's in power? No, he's not. He hasn't changed, has he? 
Hebrews 4 verse 15. He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's there and understanding for each one of us. He wants to understand and have compassion on each one of us in our struggles to go to the kingdom. It's a very reassuring thought, isn't it, brethren and sisters? And the only thing that's going to stop him helping us to get to the kingdom is guess what? It's us, isn't it? He's right ready there to do the work. It's just a question of whether we let him, isn't it? But the Lord wants us to be there in the kingdom. Now, we've looked at Jesus being baptised by John and we find that, uh, I'll just go straight over to the map here. He's, uh, he's come down from Galilee to the area of Bethabara. He's got baptised there. He then goes out into the wilderness of Judea, out here to be tempted. It's all quite close, really, you know, when you think about Christ being driven to the wilderness. It's not as though he had to go a huge distance. It's only a few kilometres. It's not very far at all. And then after his temptation, and he's there 40 days, isn't he? 40 days being tempted. Then immediately after that, we learn from John's gospel that he comes back to Bethabara. And it's that bit of coming back to Bethabara that we're going to, going to look at now. So... <clears throat> The very day he comes back, and we work this out by, um, by implication. So let's go to John chapter 1, and you will see that John very carefully chronicles all the days after Christ returns from his temptation. But he doesn't say it quite like that. So you'll see in verse John chapter 1, verse 19, this is the record of John. And the Jews sent priests and Levites to him. So that's on a day. And then verse 29 says, the next day. So that's one day afterwards. And then on verse 35, and again, the next day after John stood. And then verse 43, the day following Jesus would go forth to Galilee. And then in John chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. He gives us the complete chronology, day by day, from when Jesus comes back from the temptation until Jesus goes to that wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now, why is he doing this? Well, he's telling us that it all happens quite, quite closely. It's all within the space of a week. And he's going to emphasise something. And what he's going to emphasise is that in that short space of time, John has handed over so many of his disciples to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing is, there is, uh, in verse 19, the interrogation of the Jews to John. So we'll have a look at that. <clears throat> so John 19, and you'll pick up that this has clearly got to be after the temptation because the very next day Jesus is there. And in this reference to the interrogation of the Jews, John hints that Jesus is actually standing there. In fact, he says it. So John 19, sorry, John 1, verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests to Levites. Now, whenever we see the term the Jews in um, 
the Gospel of John, it means the leaders of the Jews. It's not just a categoric term about all the people that were classified as Jews. It's the leaders of the Jews. He uses that shorthand. So the leaders of Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Now what they're doing, we won't turn to it, is Deuteronomy 17 says that there was the responsibility on the priests to investigate people that came out with ideas. So therefore, if someone comes up with something that's a bit different, looks to be a leader, then the priests have got to go and find out what they're teaching. That was their responsibility. So they're doing their responsibility. And verse 20, and he confessed and denied not, but confessed and says, I am not the Christ. Now, they asked, who aren't you? Uh, who aren't thou? They don't ask, are you the Christ? But he knows what they're really asking. So he answers what they're really intending to ask, doesn't he? But what we miss in the King James Version is his answer, the I is emphatic in the Greek. So it's saying, I am not the Christ. Which of course means somebody else is, doesn't it? By stating it like that. So, verse 21, and they ask him, what then? Art thou Elias? <clears throat> I've got a bit ahead of myself here, but I'll pick that up in a moment. So, <clears throat> they ask him, are you Elias? Because they know from Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So, are you Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Then they say, art thou that prophet? Which is the prophet like unto Moses, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. Are you that prophet? And he says, no, I'm not that. And then in verse 23, so verse 22, then said they, who art thou that we may give answer to them that has sent us? Who has sent us? Verse 24, it's the Pharisees who are part of the Sanhedrin. And they say, that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? And here is John's record that we looked at this morning. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And then verse 25, they say, now, well, why baptizest thou then, if thou art not the Christ, nor Elias, nor that prophet? And he doesn't answer that question, does he? He just says, verse 26, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. You know, John displays amazing humility in this, doesn't he? You look at the answers that he gives to these people that have come along. And of course, they've got an agenda and he knows what their agenda is. And John is a celebrity. And he could have said, well, look, I'm not the Christ, but I'm the forerunner of the Christ to prepare the way. And that's a pretty important role, you know. He doesn't say that. And when he, and he could say, well, look, you know, yeah, I'm not Elijah, but I'm living out the spirit and power of Elijah because that was given to me at my birth. So I've got that Elijah spirit. He doesn't say that, does he? And, well, yes, I'm not the prophet, like under Moses, but I can tell you I'm actually more successful than any prophet in the history of the prophets. He doesn't defend his reputation at all, does he? He just says, no, I'm not one, not any of those. I'm just a voice. 
Wow. What humility is that? To be a man that had such a huge following, so regarded by the people, and yet he saw himself as just nobody, really. I'm a voice. I'm a voice. I think that's just truly impressive. So John turned down the temptation to claim some importance and said he was just a voice to proclaim God's word and to bring people to Christ. And you know something? That's really our role too, isn't it? Not about us being important people in, the, in Christadelphia or anywhere. We're to be a voice for the word of God to each other and to other people in the world. And that's our role. It's the same humble role that John the Baptist took on himself. And in fact, it's a huge honour, isn't it? To be amongst those that go and teach other people and encourage other people in the work of God. Well, <clears throat> now what we learn out of verse 26, where he says, There standeth one among you whom ye know not. Jesus is in the multitude there. Which means Messiah is there. And these people, they didn't say, well, okay, he's here. Who is he? Where is he? They don't, do they? And John gives them every opportunity to do that because he tells them, look, this person is preferred before me and I'm not worthy to undo his shoe latchet. Now, I find that to be a very challenging statement. Would you be okay with undoing the latchet on Christ's sandals? If Christ were to be, if we, when we meet him in the kingdom, do you think it would be disrespectful to bend down and do up his shoes, just like the most lowliest slaves used to do in those days when a visitor came to the house? The lowliest slave's job was to come along and undo the shoe latchet off, their, off the, the visitor's feet, wash their feet. But you see what John says, I'm not anywhere near as good as the lowliest slave in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow! I find that is astonishing humility. And we'll see that all through this section, where we're looking at what happens after the baptism of Christ, we see John showing humility and more humility and more humility. And he was such a grand man. How do we see our relationship to Christ? Well, church people speak of him as being a friend or an older brother. Many just refer to him as just Jesus. But John saw Christ as well above him. So did the apostles. They never called him just Jesus, did they? John 13, verse 13, the Lord says, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. And the apostles never, ever referred to Jesus as just Jesus by his first name. They always accorded him great respect. And I think there's something very important for us to maintain. Sorry, I've got my phone on. Technology. I was talking about how bad technology is this morning. <clears throat> um, yes, it's. we find the apostles never took the liberty of saying that they indicated they were anywhere near the same level as the Lord. And that's been one of the principles of Christadelphia for years, hasn't it? That we always address our Lord as our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is that. He's not just Jesus. 
He's now the anointed one, Christ, and he is our Lord. And so we term him our Lord Jesus Christ quite rightly, and we need to hold on to that because it's actually right. Now, <clears throat> the next day, so Jesus is there when this interrogation is happening. So he's back from the temptation. Verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The very next day. He's going to point out to all the people that are around Jesus on that next day. Now that tells you that they weren't actually there at his baptism, doesn't it? There's no point in pointing out somebody that, that you've already seen because if they'd been there on the day of his baptism and they'd seen the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove and they'd heard that voice, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, you wouldn't need to point him out, would you? So that says that the multitudes are here on this day with all the other disciples of John and yet on the day of his baptism, they weren't there. And John's been baptising people, huge numbers, hasn't he? We imagine in our mind queues of people queuing up to get baptised and John saying, you know, what are the sins that you've got to repent of? And they would say that and then he would baptise them and then move on to the next person. But that appeared not to happen on the day the Lord got baptised. Why might that be the case? Well, I think it's because he got baptised on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, you didn't have to be in the temple, but everyone had to be in a quiet place, meditating and thinking about their sins and the greatness of God's love in providing forgiveness for those sins. So I can imagine, and the Jews today, they go nowhere on the Day of Atonement. It's a fast. So I would suggest to you, brethren and sisters, that the Lord was in fact baptised on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that's why when the multitudes are talked about, they don't know about it. I think it was just John and the Lord was there for that baptism and how it would fit so beautifully because when the Lord gets baptised what does he do? Go straight away into the wilderness now on the day of atonement there was two goats wasn't there there was one that died immediately was killed and Christ symbolically went through that death didn't he in being baptised and there was another goat that was led out into the wilderness to die and so our Lord went out into the wilderness to put to death the flesh. So I see it's a remarkable parallel. I'd be very interested in what other people have to think about it. But I think it's just quite astonishing. So <clears throat> another interesting thing about John, notice he doesn't put off pointing out Jesus because he knows this is going to damage his following. The people are not going to follow him to the same extent anymore. It's going to be a downhill run from here. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Well, that picks up all the allusions of Genesis 22 and verse 8, where it says, God, where, the, yeah, where Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide himself the lamb. Isaiah 53 verse 7, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. But John goes on to say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Wow, what an understanding of the Bible he had. The Jews thought they could be saved, but the Gentiles, they're a lost cause. They're all dirty dogs. And until they become Jews, they can't be saved. 
And he realised, no, no, that's wrong. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Remarkable. John doesn't delay to do a hard task. What a lesson to us. He's a great example. You know, it's easy to put off dealing with the tasks that the flesh finds irksome. He could have easily said, look, uh, look, we'll let the dust settle for a little while and I'll tell the multitudes in the next you know, weeks or months that Jesus, he's the, he's the Messiah and you need to follow him. There's no rush in doing this, is there? That's what the flesh would say. But he doesn't. He gets on it straight away. Next day is the opportunity. He's there doing it. What a remarkable man. So we often have things that we can put off, like visiting a difficult brother or sister or apologising to someone we've upset or following up on a contact that lives a long way away and we're going to have to drive a few hours. What should we do? We should take the example of John. We should get on and do it, shouldn't we? A bit like Abraham when he offered Isaac. He got up early in the morning to do it, didn't he? It's something that is an important lesson. So the next day, this is verse 35. <clears throat> Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. So it's the same statement, isn't it? Now, out of this, the fact that it says, and two of his disciples, so this is not the multitude, is it? This is different. This is his disciples. So he's got an inner core of disciples. And we know that he had an inner core of disciples because Luke 11 verse 1 um, says that when Jesus that Jesus' disciples came, came to him and said, look, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So John had an inner group of disciples that he communicated with and that were his close friends. And we see it also in Matthew 9 and verse 14. So how hard this is going to be for John now to tell his close friends to leave him. You've been good, loyal friends, but... Um, you're a word for, word for loyalty is that I'm going to tell you to go and be with Jesus. That'd be hard for them to do, wouldn't it? If they'd been with John for 2.7 years or something, perhaps a little less than that, but quite a deal of time. So John stood and two of his disciples and they hear and they follow Jesus. It says, verse 37, and the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And then we know who one of them is. One of them is Andrew. And it tells us that in... Um, how old drat? Verse 40. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. And one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. So that's one of the two. Andrew. Notice that the other, other one isn't named. Who do we think it is? If we're familiar with the Gospel of John, we'll figure it out, won't we? Who do you think it is? John. Why do we think it's John? Because he never names himself in critical places in the Gospel, does he? He talks about the disciple that Jesus loved. He doesn't say, it was me, it was John. Doesn't he? So I think we're on pretty safe ground saying that it's John. Okay, So two disciples have come along and they've gone to follow Jesus. 
<clears throat> Actually, I had it on the screen, didn't I? Oh. Gave... <laughs> Gave the game away. What a silly thing to do. Now, in verse 41, we find that Simon Peter follows. It says, And he first findeth, this is Andrew, findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. And when he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus beheld him and said, Thou art Simon, son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is in, by interpretation a stone. So on this day, there is two disciples that have now come and attached themselves to Jesus. What happens on the next day? There's another two disciples. This time, Jesus findeth Philip. Sorry, from the previous day, it's actually four because there's Andrew and John and there's Simon, Simon Peter, and of course his brother, which is James. So, <clears throat> next day, this is verse 43. And the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now, it's very tempting to say, well, you know, look at this. He actually went and found Philip, so he's obviously a very important disciple, isn't he? My name's Philip, you see. You've got to have these jokes from time to time. Um, but in fact, Philip proves himself to be one of the slow-to-think disciples, doesn't he? When you follow him through the, the gospel record. So it's not quite so flattering to be named Philip. Now it says, verse 44, Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That also reminds us that these disciples that, that the, the Lord is collecting from John are all from Galilee. And yet, John is down in Bethabara, miles and miles and miles away, baptising. And these people are with him. So that tells you that they've actually got quite a commitment to be with John, haven't they? They're miles away from home. So these aren't just disciples that are disciples of convenience that come along because, well, he's just down the road from where we live. No, they're from 120 kilometres away. So... You know, they're pretty sincere disciples, aren't they? So Philip gets Nathaniel in verse 45. Philip findeth Nathaniel, his other name is Bartholomew, and said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. In other words, they're saying, well, he's the Messiah because he's written of in the, in the law and the prophets. And without going into what Nathaniel says, where the Lord convinces Nathaniel that, that he in fact has the Holy Spirit and is the Messiah. So Nathaniel is now following as well. So in two days, six disciples of John have shifted to Jesus. Peter and Andrew, John and James, Philip and Bartholomew. Now I know we've gone through that fairly quickly, but uh, I would suggest if you go through it a bit slower, it's still true. It's still very much the case. So these are all very committed disciples of John to be in the wilderness with John so far away from home. And what this has done is given Christ a huge head start in his ministry, hasn't it? He hasn't to gradually come along and collect some disciples, teach them the basics of what's involved, because there's a big paradigm shift, isn't there? Because all the people generally have been thinking in terms of law. You keep the law of Moses, put God in debt, and then God will re reward you with eternal life. Whereas what John has been teaching, which is the truth, is that God is going to save us because of his grace, because of his promises to Abraham and to David, and that what we have to do is do the best we can, but we can't earn salvation. That's a big paradigm change. And these six have already gone through it, haven't they, with John. 
So these are capable disciples that the Lord gets straight away. And what a loss to John. No, he's lost um, six very important people. Now, three of these six become Jesus' inner cabinet, don't they? Peter, James and John. They're the ones that were at the healing of Jairus' daughter, at the transfiguration, at Gethsemane. So his most, if you like, important, if we can say, that's probably an unfortunate word, disciples have been given to him by John straight away so he can launch immediately into his, into his ministry. And so it says, after that, and the third day, in other words, three days after the last day, chapter 2, verse 1, there was a marriage of Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So these disciples have gone immediately with Christ on three days walking. So they've gone um, nearly 100 kilometres to get to Cana in three days. So that's pretty solid walking, isn't it? That's 33 kilometres a day. I think I'm doing well when I do a nice six-kilometre walk. But of course, these people were used to doing very serious walking. And so three days later, they're in the marriage of Cana of Galilee. So what has John done? John has faithfully done his job as the forerunner, hasn't he? He's baptised the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He now realises his work is in decline. In John 3, he says to his disciples, the remaining disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. But you know, John still had another two and a half years of work to do. And we might think, well, it's all over. Why, why, why is God doing this to him? Well, he still has an important work to do, which is the subject of our final session tomorrow. So what are some of the lessons we've learned, brethren and sisters? Well, we've seen that the Jordan represents the flow of mankind from life to death. Christ was baptised there to identify himself with the plight of fallen mankind. And we need to identify ourselves with our brethren and sisters who have fallen into sin. We're in disgrace and let's be ready to reach out to them and help them, although we might not agree, certainly not agree with what they've done. The baptism of Christ was a declaration of God's righteousness and a commitment to lay down his life for the salvation of his brethren. Now, it's a reminder of our own baptism, isn't it, when we think about the baptism of the Lord. A time of great joy, of sins forgiven, and a time of commitment to follow Christ. It's an opportunity to relive that, those joyous commitments that we have made. The Holy Spirit came upon Christ as a dove, a symbol of gentleness, the Gospels often record that in the exercise of his Holy Spirit powers, he had compassion on the people. Despite that our Lord is now in heaven with great power, we can be grateful that he will still be compassionate to us, for he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Christ said that John was the greatest prophet ever. For those who weren't with us before, in uh, Luke chapter, chapter 7, verse 28, when people come along, with, um, and Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, he says, <clears throat> verse 28, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's an astonishing statement, isn't it? That means all the prophets, all the prophets you can think of, whether it's Elijah or Malachi or, or Jeremiah or Isaiah, John is greater than absolutely all of them. Wow. He's the greatest prophet ever. And yet John didn't consider himself worthy of undoing his sandals. The apostles never called Jesus 
just by his name, Jesus. He said, you call me Master and Lord and so say well. And so let's be careful in the way we refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. If such a great man as John was to make sure that he never took a liberty in, in dealing with Christ, we shouldn't either. And after Christ's baptism and temptation, he returns to where John is and John humbly starts encouraging his followers to leave him and follow Christ. He has the humility to accept that he must increase and I must decrease. Whatever tasks, therefore, we're called upon to perform in the ecclesia, it's a lesson to us to do them in humility, isn't it, brethren and sisters? To serve the best interests of our brethren and sisters, whether we're asked to do the more prominent tasks or the more mundane tasks. We need to have the spirit of John, don't we? To be ready to do what is, whatever is required and to do it humbly. And so what an amazing set of things we've looked at this afternoon with the baptism of John and his readiness and humility to hand over his disciples to the Lord because that's what he was to do and that was the best thing for them but of course it damaged his, uh, his fame and his glory but that didn't matter. He was ready to do whatever was the right thing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, last class was the climax of John's work with the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw at the end of the last class the beginning of the process of shifting John's disciples over to the Lord Jesus Christ, which was an exercise in great humility on John's part because he was a celebrity. There was thousands of people that had been influenced by him, who loved him. And now he's saying, I'm stepping back. He must increase and I must decrease. And that would really take quite some humility to do that, doesn't it? Now, as uh, our brother Brian said, our subject today is about they laid hold on John and bound him in prison. So we'll just go through um, a couple of things on timing because th this is actually quite interesting. Um, now, we <clears throat> what's circled on the screen is that John baptises Jesus and as I've said, um, based on the chronology that I can work out, this is um, around about six months, almost exactly six months, before the Passover. And <clears throat> just after the Passover is when John is imprisoned. Now, during this time, this six-month period here, Jesus is baptizing in Judea where John was. Let's have a look in John chapter 3 and verse 22. <clears throat> so we can see it very clearly. No, actually, we might go to John chapter, John chapter 2, uh, just first of all. So at the beginning of John chapter 2, <clears throat> we've got Christ and his now six disciples from John going to the marriage of Cana in Cana in Galilee. And that's in verse 1. And after that, um, the end of the record of that, that, uh, that wedding feast, in verse 12 it says, And after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And is this the beginning of the ministry of the Lord in Galilee? It's not actually, because it says, notice, 
and they continued there not many days. So they were in Capernaum not many days, and then where do they turn up? Well, they turn up actually back in Judea. So John chapter 3 and verse 22, it says, And after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptised. Now, he's baptising where John was before at Bethabara. And where is John? Well, verse 23, he's baptising at Anon near Salem, which is on the Jordan River up near the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And it says, and because there was much water there, and they came and were baptised. So there's now two lots of baptismal sites. There's the Lord down in the original site at Bethabara, and John is up north in uh, in Anon near Salem, and they're both baptizing. Now, then we come to John being imprisoned at this point here, and we can work out when that is, that it's just after the Passover of AD 30, and if you look at those scriptures that are on the screen, you can piece it together. We haven't got time to do all that. And then John is executed <clears throat> about two years later, just a little less, just before the third Passover. And we can be sure of this because we find that the news of the execution of John comes to Jesus just prior to him doing the feeding of the 5,000. You might remember that he takes the disciples of John that have come and told him that news. And he says, now, let us go away across the, uh, the, the water. Let's take ship so that we can have some peace and quiet. And when they get to the other side, lo and behold, the multitudes are there and the Lord has compassion on them and speaks to them, teaches them, and then feeds them. And then it makes the comment that it's just before the Passover. So we might just look at that, John chapter 6, verse 34, which is after the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. No, that's uh, not the right reference. It's Mark 6, 34. I'm very sorry. Or is it John 6, 27? Mark 6, verse 34. <clears throat> and Jesus, when he came out, saw much, much people and was moved with compassion because that they, <clears throat> toward them, because they were as a sheep, not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And that's still not the reference I'm looking for. So I've got myself confused. <clears throat> anyway, I'm sure it does say that um, immediately after that, there was the time of the Passover. John 6.4. Thank you very much. What it is to have this, the help of brethren um, to, to make up for my uh, misses. So John 6 and verse 4. <clears throat> so we'll go verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did. And Jesus went up into a mountain and sat there with his disciples. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. And it says, And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. So that tells us that the timing is that <clears throat> just before the Passover. And so here is John. He's a forerunner in the full sense of the word because he is crucified, he's killed, I should say, executed just one year before the Lord Jesus Christ is executed. So he's a forerunner yet again. Now, where is all this happening? Well, 
as we said, that there is Jesus baptising now at Bethabara. John is up, as you can see, up towards the north, on the, um, the nor more northerly aspect of uh, the River Jordan. And then, it's just while we've got the map here, we'll mention that John ends up imprisoned at Machaerus. Now, Josephus tells us that, and we'll have a look at Machaerus. It was a, a palace fortress created and built by Herod the Great, and it was one of the places of um, uh, Herod Antipas, because Herod Antipas had the territory that's all in purple here, the area of Galilee and Perea. And <clears throat> so immediately... Uh, after the, the information that both John and, um, and Jesus are baptising, the Jews decide to do something about it. So in John 3, because you might remember they, they sent a delegation to investigate John and find out who he was, and now they've discovered that there's not just one person baptising, there's two, and there's multitudes going to, to both of them, and this is getting to be a bit of a worry. So in John 3 and verse 23, it says, And John was baptising in Anon near Salem, which we read just before. In verse 25 it says, There arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. Now, the Jews there should be Jew singular. It's not, not plural. I don't know why the translators have put it in as a plural. So there's a question because a Jew has come along to talk about purifying. Now, it says purifying. But in fact, the context after this is all about baptising. So what appears to have happened is that the Jewish leaders don't like the fact that all of this is happening. And so they decide on a new strategy to get rid of the problem. It's called the divide and conquer strategy. And so they come to John's disciples and say, hey, you know, that, that man Jesus, he's, he's down down south doing baptising. He, he's in competition with you guys. Um, he's doing things that are compromising what you're doing, which is a classic divide and conquer strategy. And it, it's one of those strategies that's still used today. In fact, in the theistic evolution problems that we had a few years ago, some of the theistic evolution advocates decided to, dis to try to distract the whole debate. And they found various brethren that were against them saying that creation was the way things happened, but discovered that some of them believed in young earth creationism and some of them believed in old earth creationism. So they tried to pit the two against each other so that they could have a discussion and make sure that they were at, at enmity between each other. And of course that didn't work. But nevertheless, it illustrates the sort of thing that human nature can descend to. So the result of this is verse 26, and it says, And they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi... He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. In which case they're saying, well, hey, what's going on? Why are you letting this happen? It's a distraction. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. What a humble man. 
He saw himself as the facilitator of, of something like a wedding feast. And once that had all happened, then his job was done. Verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. Wow. So the divide and conquer routine didn't, didn't work very well. And John came out with classic humility. And the lesson I would draw out of this, brethren and sisters, is uh, it's not easy for someone who's been at the centre of a great work, particularly in the truth, when they get older, to pass it on to someone that's younger. I don't know whether you've ever observed that. But sometimes there are brethren that get older and they're hanging tenaciously onto something that really would do better if it was passed on to someone younger. But we need to keep a right perspective, don't we? All our work in the truth is not ours, is it? It's God's work. We're just the instruments in God's hands. And that's what we're trying to do is be workers for God. Now, the next stage in this sequence of things that led to the imprisonment of John is that it appears that the Jews tried another strategy and this time it worked. Come over to Matthew chapter 17. Now, Matthew chapter 17 is the chapter about the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once the Lord has been transfigured and has come down from the mountain, verse 9, <clears throat> as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Verse 10, and his disciples asked him saying, why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Now they've seen Elijah and Moses up there on the mount with Jesus and they're thinking, well, hang on, in Malachi 4, it says that Elijah must come first. So, well, maybe this is the kingdom right now um, that's about to be uh, come into place. And the Lord's answer is, verse 11, Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come. In other words, John the Baptist is not Elijah. And he will restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already in the form of John the Baptist, the spirit and power of Elijah, and they knew him not, now this is the critical bit, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. In other words, they've done to him what they wanted. And what's that? Well, it's the Lord explains. Likewise shall I also, the Son of Man, suffer of them. So just as the Jews took the Son of Man and arranged for his crucifixion and death and burial. So he's implying that that's what the Jews have done to John the Baptist. And you can see that they've been trying to get rid of John the Baptist because he's a darn nuisance to them. And so it would appear as though they have arranged for him to be gotten rid of. How might that have happened? Well, <clears throat> I would suggest to you that they tell Herod Hey, Herod, uh, probably not like that, you know, Lord Herod. Um, this man, John, is uh, going around and saying, you shouldn't have Herodias. And of course, Herod's a bit sensitive on this subject. So Herod goes away and asks John. And John says, Mark 6, verse 18, which we read, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife, which is exactly right. Under the law, it wasn't. Absolutely. It was quite wrong. So what's Herod going to do with that? Well, 
People can't say that sort of thing to me, so I'll go and put him in prison. And that's why John ended up in prison. So that's my theory of how it all happened. Um, if anyone else has got some good theories on the subject, I'd be very interested to hear. So I now focus on John being put into prison, and he's put into prison because he has spoken up against Herod having Herodias. And as you can see on the screen, there's a, a simplified version of Herod's family tree, but it's still got a, a level of complexity to it. So the first band of blue up towards the top, at the top, is his wives. Well, four of his wives. There's another six. So he had ten wives. By the way, he murdered quite a few of them. So you know, another index to the character of Herod the Great. Then here's his children on the next level down and his grandchildren on the following level down. So let's pick some people. So here is Herod Philip, who was the husband of Herodias first. And here's Herodias over here. She's actually um, the, one of the grandchildren of Mariam, who was one of Herod's wives. And here is Herod Antipas, the one that we've been talking about, the one that is the Herod that's the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. And down here is Herodias's daughter. Her name was Salome, and she was the one that <clears throat> went and famously asked for the head of John the Baptist. So that's how they fit together. Now, this is very, very significant. And how did all this all happen? Well, Josephus records in his uh, work, The Antiquities of the Jews, that Herod Antipas was visiting Rome and actually visiting his brother Philip, who was the first husband of Herodias, who lived in Rome at the time, and he had no territory. He was not a tetrarch. He didn't have a jurisdiction that was his. He was royalty, of course, because he was descended from Herod the Great, but he didn't have um, huge wealth or huge power. And Antipas becomes infatuated with Herodias. And she agrees to leave Philip and be his wife if he gets rid of his current wife, whose name was Phasileus, who was the daughter of Aretas, king of the Nabataeans. Let's keep that in your mind. She's the daughter of the king of the Nabataeans, and the Nabataeans were just south of Perea. We'll see that on a map in a moment. So, Herod Antipas agrees and sends a message off to say to the, his court, um, pick up Pharsalias' stuff and send it back to her father, Aretas, and you can imagine that her father was not exactly happy with this happening. So, Aretas then replied with a very strong and angry message back to Herod Antipas and threatens war against Herod Antipas. So that's how it happened. And when we look on the map, we can see how the drama is there because remember John ends up imprisoned at Machaerus and just south of Machaerus and around Machaerus is Nabatea, the territory of King Aretas. So when Aretas is threatening Herod Antipas, which later on he actually launched an invasion, and took most of Perea. So Herod Antipas is going to now depend on this fortress at Machaerus to be the frontier fortress against 
his estranged father-in-law. And that's where John ends up imprisoned. So, moving on in the record then, <clears throat> we find that John spoke up against Herod because it was wrong. But you see, John was a warm-hearted man and spoke to the people's hearts. But it's interesting, isn't it? Although he was a warm-hearted man, we notice that he still spoke up. I mean, he could have said, if he wanted to just compromise, well, you've married this woman now, Herod, um, you shouldn't have. Um, you shouldn't have put away your wife to marry her, but now that it's happened, we'll just have to live with it, won't we? And that's it. But he didn't, did he? He stood up to Herod, knowing that there could be some pretty severe consequences for standing up to Herod, and said, sorry, Herod, divorce and remarriage is wrong. It's just plain wrong. And we find that our Lord denounced it too. So, wow. And as a result of this, we find that Herod initially wanted to kill John, Matthew 14, verse 5. And it says, And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But we'll find that, in fact, he changes his mind about this and actually decides to keep him alive. And we'll see why he does that. So he puts him in prison in Machaerus, because Machaerus is the, the prison that's quite close to where John the Baptist was baptizing originally. But Herodias still wants to kill uh, John. And in Mark 6, verse 19, it says, Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against John. If you look in the margin, it says an inward grudge. It actually carries... Well, what happened then? <laughs> uh, it actually carries the idea of not just a grudge, but a settled hatred for. So Herodias, Herodias has got a settled hatred against John and wants him killed, but she could not. So Herod is obviously stopping this happening. Why? Because it says in verse 20, For Herod feared John, knowing he was a just man, and unholy, and observed him. In other words, kept him safe. So, <clears throat> there's a lesson out of this. John was a very wide-hearted man, but he was also prepared to stand up for right and wrong. And that's something that we do well to emulate too, isn't it, brethren and sisters? After all, John's character, which he was demonstrating, was in fact the character of the father. The character of the father is to show love and mercy, but he never compromises his truth, does he? And that's one of the important things that I think is a lesson out of this. Well, where is Machaerus and what does Machaerus look like where John was imprisoned? Well, you can go to Machaerus. It's in Jordan today. And uh, as you can see, it's a beautiful place with lots of green trees and uh, lots of attractiveness about it. <laughs> Not. It's desert. and But it's a natural fortress. You can see that it's quite a steep hill. And Machaerus, the fortress, was on the top. So the palace was right up here, and you can probably see that there is the Dead Sea, just a tinge of blue over here where the Dead Sea is, um, and you get amazing views of the Dead Sea from Machaerus. This is what uh, the Biblical Archaeological Magazine has put together as a, uh, they think, um, how the palace was. As you can see, it's a fortress palace, and it's cut away on the, on the lower side so we can see 
what the walls would have looked like, etc. And they consider that Herod's birthday was held in the royal court, which was there, and the dungeons where John the Baptist was, was right directly underneath of that area. So you can see the pillars that are around that court, and some of those pillars are still standing. You can see it here. This is a picture taken at the top of Machaerus. Again, if you look in the background, you can see the Dead Sea there. And there's some pillars still standing. And I'll put an arrow where there is an entrance down into the dungeon. We didn't go down into the dungeon when we were there. It was a, a big jump down. and <laughs> There was no stairs. So, you know, you figure if you jump down, how are you going to get out? Anyway, so that's Machaerus. Now, we find that Herod actually decides that he wants to hear John. Mark 6, verse 20, which we've been part of. And it says, And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now, in this, it's starting to tell us that Herod is actually almost prepared to be influenced by John, which tells us that John was an amazing person. He didn't have a settled grudge against Herod for Herod putting him in prison. He's actually prepared to talk to Herod about the truth. Isn't that amazing? And it says here in the ESV that Herod observed him, and the ESV says kept him safe. Well, who's he keeping him safe from? Well, he's keeping him safe from Herodias, isn't he? So how would it work? Well, <clears throat> I imagine the scene is very much like that where um, Felix called for Paul quite often in Acts chapter 24. So if you imagine, there's the court of, of, um, of Herod Antipas, and maybe it's, I don't know, Thursdays is John Day. And so in the morning of Thursdays, John comes up out of the dungeon. I mean, after all, Herod's not going to go down in the dungeon and be with John, is he? And he's certainly not going to be there on his own because that's a risk to his life. He thinks it wouldn't be at all with John, but you know, these monarchs were very concerned about people trying to knock them off. And so John would be brought up into the palace area and there'd be all the courtiers around there and that's how you'd hear John. Now, interestingly, when he hears John, it says, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So this hard-hearted man, this fox of a man that is Herod Antipas, is actually starting to soften to John, isn't he? And he did many things. In other words, John told him things that he needed to do in his life, and many of them he did. But the one thing that was absolutely needful for him to do, he didn't do, did he? He didn't get rid of Herodias. And he should have. And it was the one thing that he just refused to do. And it's a characteristic of human nature. I don't know, I don't want to name anyone, but in my experience in dealing with some people who've had difficulties in their lives, they come and talk to you, and they say they've got this real problem and they explain the problem and they're prepared to do this and this and this. 
But the thing that is really the nub of the problem that's over here, no, there's no way in the world they're going to do it. No way in the world. And you think, well, there's no point in doing the other things unless you do the critical thing. It's a problem in human nature. And I think we can learn a lesson out of that. We can see Herod's folly in not dealing with his problem. It actually cost him John's life and his own life in the end. Are there things that are in our life in Christ that we know that we need to change, but we're really reluctant to do so? Let's learn from Herod. And if there are changes that we need to make, let's be courageous. Make those changes before the day of opportunity closes. Because for Herod it closed, didn't it? Before he was prepared to make those critical changes. Now, that's the story so far. So Herod is listening to, to John. And <clears throat> he's in prison. John is in prison. And what's the significance of that? Well, we find that after, because of John's imprisonment and because of King Aretas being very unhappy with Herod because he's gotten rid of his daughter, that Jesus is actually now free to start his Galilean ministry. You see, if he'd started his Galilean ministry earlier, before Antipas was locked away in Perea, because he's now locked in Machaerus, isn't he? He can't go anywhere because, number one, he's scared Aretas is going to invade, and number two, if he goes somewhere else, he knows what's going to happen. Herodias is going to have John killed, and he likes John, so he's stuck in Machaerus, which then means he's not up in Galilee, which was his preferred palace in Tiberias, which then meant that the Lord's ministry could go ahead in Galilee, unrestrained. Now, it's not as though the Lord would be scared of Herod Antipas. It's not that would, that would be the problem. It would be if Antipas made a pronouncement that no one should go and listen to this man, that the people might say, whoa, hang on, we're going to have to not go and listen to Jesus Christ anymore, which would have ruined uh, a lot of the work of the Lord in his Galilean ministry. So it's interesting how God has worked through all of this and, you know, when John had baptised Jesus, you can almost think, well, why doesn't the father just take him out of the way? His work's finished. But he actually had some more work to do after this. And we'll discover there's quite a lot of work that he has to do while he's in prison. So that meant Jesus was free to go to Galilee and do his ministry. Now, <clears throat> while John is had been baptising, sorry, while John is in prison, Two of his disciples come from John to Jesus and say, Art thou he, or look we for another? John chapter seven, Luke chapter 7. And <clears throat> Luke 7, verse 19, it says, And John, calling unto him, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Now, there's a couple of views as to what that means. Is it that John's faith is wavering, or is it that John is pushing his disciples to join Jesus? Well, I take the latter view that it's John pushing his disciples to join Jesus. And the reason is because John's disciples are hearing rumours of what Jesus did, verse 17, and this rumour of him went forth throughout all Judea about what 
um, Christ had done and throughout all the region around about. And the disciples of John showed him, that showed John, all these things. So the disciples of John are hearing all these rumours about the wonderful things that Jesus is doing, but they're not actually seeing them for themselves. So I suggest that what John is doing is he's decided, I've got to get these chaps to actually attach to Jesus Christ. They need to see the miracle. So if I go and send them to Jesus Christ, then they should see some miracles. So I think that's what happens. And so they go down and they see the Lord and the message that comes back to John in verse 22 to 23 is, uh, and Jesus answering said unto them, to the disciples of John, go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to, to the poor the gospel is preached. And when you look at all of those things, those miraculous things, they're all things that are said of Messiah when he comes in his power. In the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 35 is one of those. So the point of this is, well, they're going to go back and say to John, well, this is what we saw. And John's going to say, well, doesn't that prove he's a Messiah? Doesn't that tell you that you need to be with him and not with me? So I think that's what the circumstances are. But having done that, we find that the crowd that is there that has watched this and heard John's disciples coming along and, and saying, well, look, are you the one to come or do we look for another? And they're thinking, oh dear, John has lost his way, hasn't he? Prison has got to him. He's losing his faith. Maybe he wasn't so strong after all. And the Lord turns around and rails on, on them quite rightly and says, verse 25, sorry, verse 24, in the middle of the verse, he says to this crowd, what went she out into the wilderness for to see? And we looked at that when we looked at uh, our third study about what they saw in John. What did they go out? And he didn't say, what went you out into the wilderness to hear? He said, what went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in, in, with the wind? In other words, it was John the sort of person that bent one way and bent another, depending on which way public opinion was going which is what, of course, we see politicians do. No, John wasn't. The fact that he was in prison showed that he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. Verse 25, what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? He wasn't. He was a man in very rough raiment. He had nothing. In other words, he wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't the sort of people that went and said something like the Pharisees did, but their intent really is to make money out of it all. So... The Lord defends John enormously here, doesn't he? Now we come to the final event of John's life. We come to Herod's birthday. We read about it in Mark chapter 6. And it says, verse 21, And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. This is one year before Christ's death, isn't it? And it's an opportune day and there's a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and his leading men of Galilee. You notice that there's not any leading men of Perea? And the reason there's not any leading men of Perea is, well, it's a desert. 
Nobody's going to be out there doing business or running a farm or doing anything. And there wasn't. But Herod's got all the leading men of Galilee, which is a lovely fertile area, and his military commanders, and he's having a birthday party. Well, <clears throat> the, the reason he's having a birthday party was that the Herods imitated what the emperors did. And apparently, the only people that, that had uh, birthday parties in those days was the Roman emperors and the people that reported to them who wanted to sort of imitate the, the Roman emperors. And the way they kept their birthday parties was they had feasting and revelry and lots of wine, and then they finished their birthday party with erotic pantomimes. So hardly one of the most wholesome events in their calendar, but that's, of course, their life, wasn't it? And this is no exception. And so when... Herodias realises that, hey, it's his birthday, he's going to have one of these erotic pantomimes, so I can help the whole process along here, and this is a great opportunity for me to get rid of John. So I've got to paint the picture, but not too, not too graphically, brethren and sisters, a little bit of the picture in verse 22. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it to thee. Verse 23, Whatsoever thou ask, I will give it to thee under the half of my kingdom. Well, when we have a look at the, uh, the Matthew record, it says in verse 6 of, of Matthew 14, that Herodias is dancing in the midst. In other words, she's dancing in and out between these drunken women, the drunken men, not drunken women. So Herodias is doing that between these drunken men. And what is that doing to those drunken men? Well, I think every red-blooded male in the, in the audience knows exactly what that's all about. Passions are inflamed. And that's why Antipas has to make some grand gesture because she has excited all of these men. And he's offering up to half the kingdom, which you know, has become a classic expression, hasn't it? Uh, through all sorts of stories of people offering to, to provide up to half their kingdom. But of course, he wouldn't really. It was just one of those grand, grand gestures that wasn't really meant. So, what does Herodias' daughter Salome do? Verse 24. And she went forth and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And one of the interesting things here is that there's two things. First of all, when it talks about the damsel in verse 22, it's not a word for a woman that is in their 20s. It's for a girl that is reached puberty and just a bit more. So you've got to think, here is a girl at about 15 or 16 years of age, maybe even a little less, maybe 14 or 15 years of age, which explains why when she's asked what, what she would ask, that she goes and talks to her mother because she's still very much under mum's control. If this is a 20-year-old girl or a 25-year-old girl, she'll be pretty independent, won't she? If she's asked what she wants, she'll say, say it for herself. She won't need to go, hey, mum, what, what should I ask for? So it also sets the scene a bit further, doesn't it? What has Herodias done with her daughter? She's basically almost prostituted her 
at a young age. You know, that's a horrible thing to do, isn't it? To put her in amongst drunken men that have got inflamed passions and she's perhaps 14 or 15 or 16. That's, that's cruel, isn't it? It shows that Herodias was just an absolute monster of a woman. So what, what is uh, Herod going to do? The daughter comes in and asks for, she says in verse 24, and she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. What's Herod going to do? You can imagine that although there's, there's been a drunken fog at his head, all of a sudden he realises, whoa, this has now become very serious. But he's caught by his own pride, isn't he? He should have said no. You can ask something else, but you can't have that. But he wouldn't because he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of all his friends there. And although his listening to John had made him do many things, this was another thing he wouldn't do. He just wouldn't do it. And so John was executed in the dungeon and John's head is brought on a platter and given to this woman, given to the daughter of Herodias. Notice uh, in the NASB it says, she says, I want you to give me at once the, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Why is it at once? Because Herodias is cunning. She realises, well, Antipas might say, oh, look, um, we won't do it now. We'll, we'll do it uh, maybe tomorrow or next week, uh, which never happens. So she wants to make sure that it happens right now so that there's no fobbing it off. And she wants it on a platter, doesn't she? Because she wants this proof that it's John. Because after all, there were other prisoners and maybe Herod would get somebody else executed and say that he got rid of John when he hadn't really, it was somebody else. So she wants to be able to look at John the Baptist and look at his head and go, that's him. You know, what a monster of a woman she is. What a terrible monster. And yet, Antipas was captivated by it's, it's just one of those tragic things, isn't it? Of a woman that had great control over this man, and he's a king. He's a tetrarch. Well, there's exactly the same story with Ahab and Jezebel, isn't there? Just like there was with Herod and Herodias. Elijah was a prophet to Ahab and to Jezebel. John the Baptist is the prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah to Herod and Herodias. Elijah reproved Ahab for his evil deeds, like 1 Kings 21 when he went into the, the field of Naboth and told Ahab that he should not have had Naboth executed. John reproved Herod for his evil deeds. Ahab at times listened to Elijah and even repented. Herod listened to John and did many things. Ahab was too weak to stand up against Jezebel. And Herod was too weak to stand up against Herodias. Jezebel wants Elijah killed. And so does Herodias want John killed. You know, it's just a carbon copy, isn't it? Amazing how the word of God just puts those things together. And it so happens that John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, John had been in prison for two years, hadn't he? And we might wonder why God let him be in prison for two years. He ended up being executed at the end. Why not take his life away at the beginning of this? Why let him just sit there and rot for two years? 
Well, I think he had a work to do, you know, brethren and sisters. Number one, as we've said, it kept Herod at Machaerus so he didn't interfere with Christ's ministry in Galilee. But I think there's another one that we can detect. It also gave him opportunity to preach to Herod's court. And I think we find out from other parts of the New Testament that that preaching in Herod's court was actually effective. So, as I said before, you imagine this is the courtroom or this is the, the court area of, of Herod's palace. And so when it's John's morning to come up, he comes up out of the dungeon and there is Herod on his throne and all around him are the courtiers and the important people of the land because nothing was said to Herod in private because you couldn't afford for that to happen. So here are all these courtiers listening. Come with me to, to Luke chapter 8 and to the beginning of Luke chapter 8 where it describes the women that are with the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry. So in verse 1 of Luke chapter 8 it says, And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others which ministered unto him out of their substance. So there's this lady, Joanna, and she's the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Now the word there for steward means the person that is the house manager. So this man, Chusa, is the manager of the court of Herod. He's the one that looks after all the facilities. So he would be there at Machaerus with Antipas listening to John. Isn't that interesting? Why are we told this information? Because I think it's telling us that he listened to John, perhaps reluctantly at first, but after a while thinks, this man's really onto something. And he's telling Herod that there's this man, Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. Maybe he is. And his wife is one of those that's got, that's got evil spirits. So she's a sick woman. So he says, well, goes and sees Joanna afterwards. and says, Joanna, go and see this man, Jesus, up in Galilee. He might be able to heal you. And he does. And of course, she then follows him. Isn't that remarkable? And that's not the only incident. We'll have a look at Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we have the record of, we know of um, Paul and Barnabas going, heading off on their first missionary journey. And we get introduced to some of the people in the Ecclesia at Antioch in verse 1. Now there were in the Ecclesia that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, and here come the names, don't they? Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, who we know as Paul. So let's focus on Manaean. So he's a man which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. There's a bit of a story about how people were brought up with the Herods. Because, see, when the Herods had children, they didn't, and when their children got to school age, they didn't just pack them off and say, look, 
head off out of the palace, go down to the local school and you can be educated there. No, no, no. Too risky, isn't it? Because someone could kill them. So what they did is they brought the school into the palace. And if you bring the school into the palace, well, you can't just have the, the school with just your kids. You've got to have other kids there too, don't you, to make it a real experience for your kids. But of course, the kids that come into the palace to have school there are very carefully selected. They're not just anyone. They're the people that are, uh, they're the children of the people that are known to be loyal, the children of the people that are well-to-do. And Josephus talks about this. So, you imagine the scene. There's school being held, and here is uh, Manaean, who's one of those children that has been brought along from another family that's well-to-do or, or, or loyal, and he's in the palace, and he gets educated with Herod. Now, what happened after that is when Herod becomes someone of importance and becomes a tetrarch, he needs to have his own loyal group of supporters, doesn't he? And who does he choose? The people that have been to school with him because he knows he can trust them. And they have already demonstrated loyalty. So this man, Manaean, has been brought up with Herod, so he would have been in the court. And who's he been listening to? He would have been there listening to John the Baptist. And that's how he came to the truth. In the same route. John would have said, look, all of you, you need, you need to go and see Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And he's gone and done that. And then here he is, some years later, at Antioch. And he's right there in the work of preaching the truth in Antioch. Isn't that amazing? So was John's time in the, in the court wasted? I don't think so, brethren and sisters. Being in prison for two years would have been pretty hard on John, but it benefited others. And when our circumstances in life take a turn for the worse, and we wonder why on earth this is happening, let's remember that Yahweh, our loving God, might be doing this to us for somebody else's benefit. In that case, John was languishing in prison, but he was helping others come to the truth. Well, we come, brethren and sisters, now to the very end and to the epilogue about, you know, what was John's legacy? John's influence was huge. We get an indication of it that in Acts 24, sorry, Acts 18, there is a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, and he comes to Ephesus but he knows only the baptism of John. Now you think about that. He's a Jew and he's in Alexandria and he knows the teachings of John, but John never went there. So obviously the word got spread far and wide about John and even to Alexandria. And this man is convinced, and not only is he convinced, when he goes on a trip to Ephesus, he's telling other people. He's preaching the baptism of John. Wow, what an effect. And also at Ephesus, when Paul came there, he found certain disciples and said unto them, Now, what were you baptized to? And they say, Under John's baptism. So there's a bunch of disciples at Ephesus that know about John's baptism. And they hadn't heard about Jesus Christ. So, wow, has John's effect been amazing. 
And I'd just like to take you back, brethren and sisters, to Luke chapter 7. Because what we've just talked about is an illustration that John, as a prophet, was the greatest of the prophets. Because his influence spread far and wide. John 7 verse 28, this is when the Lord is defending John in front of the, the sniggering audience. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And as we said at the beginning of our studies, since we're all born of women, that means that John was the greatest prophet ever. Greater than Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah or Elisha, all of them. That's an amazing statement about him, isn't it? The greatest prophet ever. But the verse continues with something that's an amazing exhortation to us. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I don't know what you think about the coming kingdom and whether you've thought about, well, I have, for example, and sometimes when you have nights when you can't sleep very well, you sort of wake up at three o'clock in the morning, boing, and you think, well, I've either got to get up or I've got to do something because uh, I can't get to sleep. I find it very instructive to just think about, well, what's the kingdom going to be like? And, you know, there, there's a hierarchy in the kingdom, isn't there? There's going to be those that are on the right and the left hand of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of those could actually be John, but perhaps we can talk about that. And then there's others underneath it. So it's a hierarchy. So where are we going to end up? Well, I tell you what, and this is probably true for you, as long as I'm in the kingdom, I don't want mind whether I'm down the bottom or up the top or anywhere. I just want to be in that kingdom. And I'd be very happy to be at the lowest level, the most basic role in the kingdom. I'd be very happy with that. And that's what he's talking about here, isn't he? But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Wow. What a prospect we have, brethren and sisters. We might be the, the lowliest person in the kingdom of God, but we will be a person of influence greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest of all the prophets. Isn't that something to look forward to, brethren and sisters? Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Well, I thought I'd just finish with a few lessons. Now, I've tried to draw out some lessons as we've gone through, and uh, I didn't think I'd sort of rehearse the whole lot all over again because that'd be quite a few slides. So I've just got one slide of some of the major things that are lessons for us out of John the Baptist. We look at John the Baptist and see a man that had no possessions and lived in the desert. He lived a simple life, didn't he? He was not dominated by possessions, but he was able to devote his time and energy to God. What an example that is to us. We can't live as John lived because of our society in which we live in now, but we can choose to live simply, can't we? And not load ourselves up with all sorts of things that are distractions. John got the people to come to the wilderness to hear the voice of God. And as I've said uh, in the exhortation, I think we all need to have wilderness time. Time that we schedule to be away from the distractions of possessions and phones and all sorts of other things that we can focus on the word of God and let God talk to us out of the scriptures so that we can listen to what he's saying. 
John the Baptist was preparing people for the coming of Christ. And of course, we need to prepare ourselves, but also we need to help to prepare other people, don't we? In the ecclesia and in the world around us, because we want people to be in the kingdom. Our Father wants people to be in the kingdom, doesn't he? And so does our Lord. John the Baptist talked to people's hearts to convince them to repent and be baptised. And so it's our job too to win over people's hearts to do the same things, to repent and turn to Christ and be baptised. And John in humility said, he accepted that he must increase and I must decrease. And humility is one of the attributes that we all need to have. It's contrary to the lust of the flesh that is all about the pride of life, isn't it? We need to remember that our work in the truth is not about us, is it? It's, it's that we're working for God. That's what we want to do, is do the things that God wants us to do. So may it be, brethren and sisters, that our studies on John the Baptist have been beneficial, and we look forward to that wonderful day when resurrection happens and when he's alive again. And won't we want to talk to John and learn from him and get from him his the warmth of his character and his love for the things of God and for our Lord Jesus Christ.